Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm back after a break and with an episode I recorded well over a year ago. My apologies to Jackie Martling, but the episode was lost, lost to mankind on a memory card where many episodes have now been retrieved. So that'll be good. You'll get to hear over the next few episodes some stuff that I thought may never make it to the human ear. But it's back. Was lost, but now is once again working thanks to the help of some buddies of mine who know a little bit about how to fix a memory card. All right. Great episode ahead. Hopefully it can still sell some books for Jackie Martling, even though the book is not newly out anymore. I still enjoyed it, and I think you will, too. Uh, A lot has changed for me since this episode. I've actually lost 43 pounds since this conversation, and I've gained a lot of understanding about my own struggle with food and addiction, and I've come a long way. But I still think the episode is interesting and says a lot about where I was at the time, and maybe it can help somebody along the way to get where I am now. And that's about it. There's also one interesting moment in the episode where Jackie mentions that some relative of his is big in the Republican Party, and he goes, don't look at me like that. And I remember when I listened back to it, I'm like, I ain't looking at him like anything. I got no judgments on you, whoever you are, and wherever you are politically, maybe Nazi Party. I don't like Nazis, and that should surprise no one. Other than that, you be whatever you want to be, and I love you. I don't care. You know, that's not where I'm coming from, and I understand that there are very intelligent arguments on every side of the political spectrum. I'm actually going to do a YouTube show about it, which I've been working towards called Daniel in the Lion's Den. And one of the things I'm going to do is have people on with all kinds of political opinions and try and hear everybody out because I feel like this country is way too divided and I don't like how judgy everybody's become of everyone else. And uh, I think that speaks to that moment in the show, which was just a quick moment. But when I listened back to it, I remembered thinking I wasn't even looking at him like anyway. I love everybody. I really do. All right. Listen, great talk with a legend, Jackie, the joke man, Martling. You probably know him or remember him from the Howard Stern Show, or you've seen him perform. Very funny guy. And without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, here's my talk with the wonderful Jackie Martling. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people, each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers, and now here's Daniel LaBelle. All right, I'm here in New York City with Jackie Martling, Jackie the Joke Man. I was uh, I hesitated on the last name because I wasn't sure if I should throw in the Joke Man, but... It's always fine by me. It's, it's almost a middle name. It's... Yes, I've, uh, I've been going by that since 1983. It was coined by Rick Dees in Los Angeles, of all people. People always assumed it was Howard Stern or me. But I was doing jokes for Rick Dees a million years ago. And uh, he was actually taking them off my dial joke, which I've had going for 38 years. And uh, well, Your yeah, dial you gotta, joke? You got to have sirens in yeah, the background yeah. or else you're not really in New York City. <laughs> yeah. I've I've had my own dial joke for thirty eight years. Well, what is a dial joke? Five one six nine two two nine four six three. Five one six nine two two wine. We started the comedy, the whole comedy thing on Long Island in nineteen seventy nine. We put on a show in a restaurant, you know, with my guitar amplifier and a few comics, 
And we had no money, of course. So how are we going to promote it? I got the bright idea. I'll just get a phone line mm-hmm. and like the premise of adver- advertising, give them a little content, give them a little advertising. You know, so I told a couple of dirty jokes and then said we're going to be at Cinnamon and Huntington every Tuesday night and then told more jokes. It got crazy, Danny. By, by 1983, I was getting between five and 10,000 calls a day. It's yeah. a whole it's a whole nother novel. Wow. But Rick Dees used to call it without telling me. And he used to use the jokes in L.A. Well, I didn't care. I guess he was giving me credit. But it got dirtier and dirtier because the world changed. I, you probably were young. But in 1979, all of a sudden, it was HBO. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and there's bare boobs on the TV, and you're sitting with your mother. The, the world changed. So the, everything got a little naughtier. Mm-hmm. My dial joke got naughtier and naughtier. And uh, one day, Rick Tees called up and said, Jackie, I've been using your jokes I've been telling my audience that 516-922-9463 is Tom Selleck's home phone number. (laughs) And that's why I was so crazy. But he couldn't use the jokes anymore. And he said, would you do some jokes for me? And I said, sure. He said, we'll call you Jackie the Joke Man Martling, who knows all the jokes in the world. I'm like, that sounds good. And it stuck. Well, at the time, I was already on the Stern Show. So all of a sudden, you know, they wouldn't let me say Jackie 922 Wine Martling anymore because they got so many complaints at WNBC. Yeah. And then one day I walked in and said, now I'm Jackie the Joke Man Martling. And, and it's stuck like glue for, I don't even want to know how many decades it is. But. So just to just to be clear, and I think I get it, but just to clarify for the listeners, you'd call up this line and you'd have a different joke on the machine. For seven years, it was different every single day, seven wow. days a week. Now it's the same for like weeks at a time. It's were, just one line in my house. <clears throat> were these jokes you wrote? or No, I am a dirty joke teller. I'm a joke teller. Mm-hmm. I've been spouting out absorbing jokes and telling them back my entire life since as far back as I can remember. And um, I have, you know, to be a comedian, there's two things you can't do. You can't tell old jokes and you can't laugh at yourself. That's all I do is tell old jokes and laugh at myself. <laughs> but it's worked forever. You know, people are like, well, you just opened a joke book to go into comedy. I had been organically telling and sharing jokes my entire life. I, when I quit music in, ni- uh, in 1979 at the age of 31 and started telling jokes on stage primarily, I used to tell jokes with my guitar, but I already you know, knew every joke in the world by 1979, by the <laughs> mid-70s, and I just started telling them on stage, and it worked like a charm. I think they used to call that a street corner comedian, right? But whatever it is, it, it just works, and... Uh, I don't solve any problems. I'm not political. I don't, <laughs> you don't walk away with anything except laughter. You know, for yeah. 40 years, people have come to my shows and laughed for an hour. And that's all I want to do is make people laugh. That's all I care about. Do you remember when you first started telling jokes? Was it as a kid? Well, you know, it's a very common question when you st- we started getting famous. People would always say, and I absolutely remember and a very, an incident that's as clear in my mind as the day it happened. In 1956, I'm in third grade. And in those years, I was from a little neighborhood. And, you know, everybody was was poor. It was a blue-collar neighborhood. So we're having a snowball fight. We didn't have a dryer where you had a snowball fight, then threw the clothes in the dryer, and they got warm and dry and heated up and put them back on. We would have a snowball fight and then walk in and sit on my buddy's floor and drip dry and freeze our balls off until we were warm <laughs> enough to go back out. So I'm sitting there. I'm in third grade. And I tell I tell a story every night in my act because I can still remember being there. And I'm, I know that sounds melodramatic. 
I'm in third grade, he's in fourth grade, he's in second grade. It's a very small town, so it's sporadic. And we're freezing our asses off, sitting on the floor of Roy Mitchell's living room. Mm -hmm. And my cousin Pete walked in, who was in eighth grade. Now imagine you're in third grade, your eighth grade cousin walks in, you yeah. know. And he took out a piece of paper and he read a filthy poem, a parody to the night before Christmas. Danny, I swear to you, I can see the guys. I can tell you who they were. Uh -huh. They were mesmerized. They were spellbound by this filthy poem my cousin was reading. And something in my stupid little mind must have gone click and thought, that's cool yeah. or that's fun. And I remembered every joke since then. But I, th I thought everybody in America knew all the jokes I knew. Yeah. It wasn't until years and years later I realized nobody knows the jokes. The comedians don't know the jokes. Nobody cares. I remember too. I remember I I spent a weekend at my friend's house in in Woodmere, Long Island, and his dad, who I think still does a little bit of, of like, you know, comedy nights and stuff, you right. know, around Long Island. Uh, his his name is Stewie Rappaport, and we're sitting around Friday night, and he starts telling jokes, and I you're like mesmerized as a kid. You're like, wow, this is amazing. This adult just got cool, you know. But it's so fun. Yeah. So, you know, instant recognition, instant likability. You know, it, it's a it, incredible tool. It's a, it's as valuable a tool as playing guitar. You yeah. know, I did I did both. You know, I wanted to meet Broad, so I was covering my bases. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then and I just told him, you know, a million years later. I was a catch a rising star to check out the Monday night thing, not as a performer, just because it sounded so interesting. Because mm -hmm. I played in a band on Long Island, just a two-piece band. We told dirty jokes. We played our own songs. And we were entertainers. We were good. We were talented. You know, we weren't ever going to go anywhere. And I was a catch a rising star, <clears throat> and it was audition night. And the person auditioning, you know, five minutes is a long time if you really stink. Mm -hmm. And the person bailed out, and I jumped on stage and started telling it what to me was an old stale joke. And David Say was the MC. He became a very good friend of mine years later. I've known him for decades now, mm -hmm. but he came walking back in because he had stepped out of the room. And he saw me on stage, but he let me finish. And I finished the joke, brought the house down. Yeah. You know, I was loaded. And on the way out, he said, hey, that was a funny joke. I said, oh, you know that joke. He goes, no, I never heard that joke before. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? I swear to God, a light bulb went off. I'm like, if the MC at Catch a Rising Star in Manhattan hasn't heard that joke, yeah. maybe there's other people. And it turns out nobody's heard the joke. Yeah. And I realized I was sitting on a gold mine. You know. And how often do you find a new joke that really excites you? Not that often, but when I do, I love it. Sometimes somebody tells me a joke and it hits me that I know I heard decades ago, but it didn't hit me as funny. And so many now that it's so rare, it's so random how it happened is so funny i got this this guy named uh ed hamill who's a guitar player and a philosopher and a just an artist you know one of those crazy talents that just has not got his due yet but he will and we had instant love fest when we met and i had him on i had a radio show for eight years on sirius xm called jackie's joke hunt and everybody came on and told jokes and Everybody I meet in my life that has ever given me their email is on my list. I have a list of about 30,000 people, and I send out jokes every month. But it's it's the same old thing. It's jokes, but it right. says where I'm going to be working, where my book signings are. It's, it, you know, it's self-aggrandizing, but it's also jokes and a bunch of kids' jokes to tell your grandkids. It's sure. fun. Yeah. And this guy, Ed Hamill, 
came on the show and he said, oh man, the last mailing was so great. He says, you know my favorite? And he tells me his favorite joke. And I said, Ed, that's, that's a great joke. He said, what? It was on your mail. I said, no, it wasn't. And he's arguing me. I'm like, I know a billion jokes. Yeah. You just told me a new one. And you think I, I can know a billion jokes, but yet not know if I'd never heard a joke before. Right, right, right. And the joke is so great. And my whole life, I wanted to tell a joke to Paul McCartney. I, 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 joke tellers have a bond. They really do. It's like people that like hockey, people that are Jet fans. Doesn't matter if you're a midget, a woman, a big, if, <clears throat> if you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a leveler. And I used to always argue with Howard Stern that if I ever had McCartney in my clutches, he'd be mine in five minutes because he loves dirty jokes. And people who love dirty jokes love me. They don't love me. They just know they're going to get good material out of me, right. which is all dirty joke tellers care about. You deliver the goods. Deliver the goods. <clears throat> and everybody knows this about me. It broke my heart. He, McCartney came on a couple months after I left the show. Day. Yeah. I was at a screening about a year ago. My lovely girlfriend, Barbara Klein, with hanging out, and it's Tina Fey and Lorne Michaels. It was the big short. It's uh -huh. a great movie. And it was at the MoMA, you know, really, you know, Museum of uh, Art. Modern, and and yeah. it's just a really fan, too, too fancy a screening for us to be at, <laughs> or for me to be at. And McCartney comes walking down the stairs with his wife. But this is New York, you know? Yeah. I mean, he can go places. And Barbara's like, wow. You can go tell him some jokes. I said, Barbara, there's not a person at this screening that doesn't think they have a perfectly legitimate reason for walking up to Paul <laughs> McCartney and telling him where you were in 1964. Yeah. You know, I, the, the fact that this is New York and people don't do that is why he can go to this. Yeah. So this is me and my big mouth. McCartney and Nancy's wife circle the party. Danny, they walked in front of my nose, uh -huh. in front of, and the devil just... And I just touched his lapel with my hand to stop him. Uh -huh. And I said, can I tell you a joke? And he said, sure. And, and I blew his brain. <laughs> sure, I, go I got, ahead. I got to yeah. tell you a joke. A guy goes for a job interview, <laughs> and the interviewer says, what do you think is your biggest fault? And the guy says, uh, I think my biggest fault is my honesty. And the interviewer says, I don't think honesty is a fault. The guy says, I don't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the game. McCartney's yeah. like, oh, that's a good one. And he walked away. And I told I said, Barbara, he's gonna tell that to everybody he knows. And then, you yeah. know. And that's one of those things where I remember where I got that joke. And that was only a couple of years ago. And where'd you get that joke? No, from the guy that's Ed the one. Okay. And I don't know where he said he got it from me. I said, No, you didn't. Right. So he's telling, hey, here's one of Jackie's greatest jokes. I never heard of it, you know. <laughs> Not that long ago, about the, the, do you know who Mark Hudson is? He, he, from the Hudson Brothers TV show. He he wrote Living on the Edge for Aerosmith. He's a, a multi, multi-talent. You would love to interview this guy. Okay. He is so funny. Um, he's, he's just great. I, we'll talk about that later. But I went to do it. He does a show once a month at Iridium. And he has all kinds, you know, Billy J. Kramer and, and you know, Blast from the Past from every walk of show business. Because when the Hudson Brothers were on, they were the summer replacement for the Sonny and Cher show in yeah. the 70s. And, you know, his brother, Billy Hudson, was married to Goldie Horn. Kate Hudson's his niece, you know, one of those things. So he always, you know, wherever I go, I always get up and tell jokes. You know, I used yeah. to get up with Les Paul, was my dear friend for his last 10 years. So Hudson asked me, and I go up on stage and tell my jokes. I come off stage, and a guy grabs me. He says, oh, Jack, i a fan for 40 years. I, I got to tell you a joke. Yeah. I know you know them all. I know you know them all, but I, I just got to try one. I said, Okay. 
And it's so funny when somebody gets me with a joke. Yeah. Because they all start, you don't have to pretend you haven't heard it. You don't have to be polite. I said, look, I'm not polite. A girl yeah. starts a joke. I nail her and stop her right in her tracks. I'm not a polite <laughs> guy when it comes to jokes. Because I can't have people going around saying, oh, I told Jackie a joke he didn't know. You know. Yeah. But if you get me, you get me. And this guy told you, and I peed. And this guy told me a joke. It's the oddest. I can't use it in my show because it's too dirty. Now, I have a filthy show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts all right, then gets a little, it's gradual. It's a, it's a fun, if you like dirty jokes, there's not, no better show you'll ever see in your life. And I, I don't mind saying that because who the hell cares about dirty jokes? Mm-hmm. But I don't do anything that slows up the audience. I'm going a million miles an hour. So all of a sudden I say something that hits a brick wall for any reason, it's not worth it to me. Because if I lose you for a second, it's like if a waitress drops a tray and the people turn their heads and miss the setup, right. the punchline's invalid, you know? So that I don't do, I very rarely do any Jesus jokes because because it makes people stop and think about, oh, should I have laughed at that? Am I going to get hit by lightning? Even if they don't even, just from upbringing in America, just oh, yeah, Jesus you know, might, it's, if it slows them down for a second. I had a great Jesus joke. I think it was a great Jesus joke, and other people did too. But I, I did it when I was a young comic at the uh, comic strip live years ago, and it killed. And afterwards, uh, Lucian, you remember Lucian Holt? Of course, of course. He never liked me anyway because Richie brought me in, who was the original owner and still the owner of the comic strip. And I didn't even realize I was sidestepping Lucian, and he he was hurt from day one. But I remember him coming up to me with his arms tightly folded and saying, I don't appreciate you doing Jesus jokes at the club. And uh, I was like, why? I couldn't even, I just, it didn't even register to me. And then I found out he goes to church and he was offended. And I just thought, but I thought anything at a comedy club, you know? He, I have the exact, wait till we talk about Tink and we have the exact same story. Richie loved me and I sidestepped Lucian and he hated me because I had too many fart jokes. Okay. <laughs> So uh, oh, and while while we're on Lucian, just for a second, uh, this also came up. I remember him walking up to me a few times. I think he tried to connect with me, and we never we never could connect. And he walked up always with this, this stiff folded arms, and he walks was up a tight man. Yes, and he goes, you know, there are only four kinds of jokes, and he just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's Jewish. The same four kinds of jokes. There are only really four. But, you know, I've thought about it. I only think there's one kind of joke. Yeah, funny or not funny. No, but I think it's just misdirection. Every joke is just of misdirection. Course, That's of course. That's it. I don't of know course. where he came up with these other three types. Listen. I should have asked know, him. I, I don't even want to discuss them. They don't discuss the dead. But, you know, how they wound up with a guy at the helm that had less than zero sense of humor, you know. <laughs> but the bottom line is, I, so you don't, do, you don't do anything that stops them. Yeah. And this joke stops the crowd in their tracks. And I got to wait to plow on and start again. But you can tell the joke on terrestrial radio and you can tell it to your five-year-old kid. Yeah. Imagine that this is all the same joke. Okay. The lady calls the doctor and she says, Doc, I have diarrhea. Uh Can I take a bath? And he says, if you have enough. (laughs) 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 Which is just. So good, but you know, people are like, oh, yeah. oh, and like, no, next joke, oh, you know. <laughs> Is that great? Yeah. So once in a while, people get me, and there's a whole, I got lists and lists of jokes of, of, I remember who told me when, and I got great stories about famous people trying to stump me, and they can't, uh-huh. and it makes them crazy. 
Yeah. You know, you know, famous people like, all right, Mr. Joke Man, you know. Here you go. Okay. And they go, why? I said, to get to the other side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it's always funny. It's always funny. You know, James, uh, uh, what's his name? The Mike, Hutt, the, the Mike Tyson documentary, James Toback. Huge party for his Mike, Mike Tyson documentary. And Mike Tyson's there. I'm with my friend Tom Bernard from Sony Pictures Classics. That's how I got into all these places. We're at Sundance. It's a really fancy party. It's an unbelievable documentary. And the whole glitter eye there. It's so amazing. And Tom says, James, this is Jackie Martling. He goes, oh, Jackie the joke. Man. I, <laughs> I got one for you. And he starts a joke. And I finished it before he even started. And threw him. And he yeah. tried another one. And I finished it. Yeah. He said, oh, nice to meet you. The guy was at the party for his documentary. He's meeting unbelievable people and every five minutes he's circling back all right how about this one and he must have circled back because it was in his craw yeah you know yeah. it made him nuts yeah which is so fun you know like <laughs> i like that term in his craw you yeah, don't you hear know, that one much, i'd love yeah. somebody to go up to james yeah. toback and say i love your work but i hear you can't tell jackie a joke <laughs> you go nuts you know i mean it's a ridiculous it's a ridiculous thing to be able to do but i can't do it you know so do you ever start formulating jokes just from having them in oh, your yeah, head yeah, all yeah, the time yeah, you, yeah. Know? you know well it's funny because i was the head writer of the stern show mm -hmm. and i never gave him a joke everything he said that i wrote was a a, a line or an idea mm -hmm. or a way to go or a rank out that it was Never two Jews go into a bar. It was all stuff, <clears throat> but that was the years and years and years of just of being just trained flooding through to your know head. Yeah. what's going to get to the funny. And, you know, so, so it was the odd. So my act is all old, old, old jokes. And the whole Stern thing was not improv. It was punchlines on, on demand, you know, which, yeah. is, which is very, a lot of people, that's why my book's going to sell because when people, it starts going around like, what, do you realize what the guy did on the show? Because most people, right. you know, people in show, you know, the people in show business know, but the average person are like, they thought this little fat guy's sitting there laughing and, you know, and then he wants more <laughs> money. What's wrong with him? You know, he's lucky they're feeding him, you know? <laughs> you know, obviously you won't remember this, but I met you when I was uh, a kid and I ran into you on the street, and it was, I am from Long Beach, Long Island, and I took in the train that day, and there was some free paper, like the, I don't remember what it was called, maybe the Long Island Star or Sound, and I read this interview that you did, and uh, I'd never met you or anything, and then I put the paper down, and I'm walking around the city, and I run into you. It was like, yeah. I say, hey, Jackie, I just read your interview in the, in the Long Island, whatever the name of the paper was, and you looked at me with perfect timing. You go, you're the one? <laughs> <laughs> Did you laugh? I loved it. <laughs> I told everybody all week. I said, oh, you got to hear <laughs> Oh, that's so nice. Your timing was perfect, and it was just, Thank that's you. all I needed, you know? <laughs> so you were sold. Yeah. I convinced one. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about your childhood a little bit. <clears throat> I, uh... I was raised by wolves. You know, it's funny. My childhood yeah. was, we were the Waltons till fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. My father worked hard, worked two jobs. It was me, then my brother, then my sister. And then much later, my little brother. And my father worked two jobs and worked hard. 
we lived downstairs and my aunt and uncle lived upstairs and it's so great. It was, it was the Cramdons and the Nortons. Mm -hmm. We lived downstairs. It was the house that my father's father had built or had built in 1900, where he was raised. My sister to this day lives there with her husband and uh, her kids recently moved out. And, um, Irish family? Or? No, you know, like Dutch Huguenot. Okay. Forget my family. We came to Staten Island in 1675. Wow. And the other side, the hall side, the first chapter in my book addresses whether or not I'm illegitimately related to Theodore Roosevelt. But my uncle, my great uncle Len, my father's uncle, his father was theoretically Roosevelt's illegitimate half-brother, but his father ran Sagamore Hill, which right. was Theodore Roosevelt's place on Oyster, in Oyster Bay. And he wound up being the Republican national chairman. He literally got Eisenhower elected in 52 and in 56. So he's a p very big politician. Nassau County used to be the 49th state, they mm -hmm. called it, for the Republican Party. And uh, don't look at me funny. I hate Trump. I'm not, I'm, oh, I'm a Democrat. I'm not. But, uh, but um, so my father had a great, but then my father's job got better. And he became deputy superintendent of highways. So he worked with contractors. He had to hire you to pave the road. He had to hire you to put in the sidewalks. And so the contractors took him out to lunch. And my father had always been a little thirsty, but uh, now somebody was picking up the tab and, he got crazier and crazier, and our yeah. lives got crazier and crazier, and uh, everything kind of deteriorated. But I had a house that was one of those melting pot places in the town, right dead center. Mm -hmm. And it was me and all my friends. Then it was my brother and all his friends. Then it was my sister and all his friends. And I grew up in the late 60s. So the, the house was, you know, packed with hippies yeah. day and night. And it was a... It was the kind of house that you would imagine would have produced me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I came from some prim and pri I mean, yeah. it was the mad house that you say, who's going to come out of there? The joke man, you know. Yeah. You know, and I was just funny. I was just at my mother, in my mother's attic yesterday showing uh, my girlfriend, because the attic of my mother's house was the first joke land. Because when I quit music, you know, I had nothing to do. I'm 31 years old. I didn't have a penny. So I moved into my mother's attic and threw everything out the window and you know, started making albums and that's where my dial joke was and it wound yeah. up being 10 lines and it's a great, it's a great story. Were you freaking out a little bit when music didn't work out at 31? You know what? No, never. I mean, right now I'm freaked out and 10 years ago I was freaked out, but I've never been more freaked out than, you know, I've always been happy half the time and miserable half the time. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 70s I had no money. I was miserable half the time, happy half the time. I'm a multimillionaire working on the Stern Show with 20 million fans. I'm miserable half the time. You know, yeah. I'm pretty much of a rock. <clears throat> I graduated from Michigan State University in 1971 as a mechanical engineer with no idea of ever doing that. You well, know, I went what made to college, you do huh? that in the first place? Why'd, huh? you, why'd, you, why'd you go for that? Well, I, I went to Michigan State to get far enough away from my high school girlfriend that I wouldn't have to come home. And I took a difficult major because I knew if I didn't, I would fail out. So I took a tough major, you know, calculus, mechanics. Because just to you, challenge yourself? As a challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, took me five years to graduate, then another two years to get the hell out of town because I was playing rock and roll in the bubble that is a college town, which is the just storybook. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my life has been storybook to storybook to storybook. You know, I bailed out of there and 
worked construction in Denver for six months, just long enough to realize I will never, ever, ever, ever do that. What did you hate about it? Getting up and working and my hands hurting and not being able to play music because your hands are all, you know. Yeah, okay. It was work. What do you mean, what do you hate about it? It was work. <laughs> what are you, an asshole? What did you hate about work? It was work. Meanwhile, I worked 25 hours a day on this crap. But, right. you know, like George Burns said, he retired when he was 15 and went into show business, you know. Yeah. And then uh, came home to New York and started playing the guitar and writing songs and playing guitar and writing songs. And the whole 70s, we we drank and smoked pot and banged girls and wrote songs. And we weren't any good, but, man, we had fun. We drove around the entire 70s in a bright yellow 1955 Cadillac hearse. Mm -hmm. You got to see it to believe it. I mean... <clears throat> and then so you were like a rock star in your town uh, yeah but we, we we were so far from rock star but yes but in your it, own head it, you were living the no, life you we're, know we're living what we want it would have been lovely to have some success at it but you know we're getting plenty of girls and we certainly couldn't have drank anymore and we certainly uh, luckily we didn't have the money for cocaine but it wasn't even cocaine time yet it was yeah. the 60s and this is the late 60s which is you know the ideal time to be in college and then the 70s were just just so, so wonderful and so free and so crazy. We had this big, stupid car, but we never made any money. <clears throat> so at the end of the 70s, I, this is the worst story in the world, but there were a three-piece band mm -hmm. with two guys playing guitar. And then a guy showed up one day and said, hey, I know all your songs. I want to be in the band. He knew the songs better than my partner. So we're a three-piece band called the Off Our Rockers, H-O-U-R, Off mm -hmm. Our Rockers. And... We're no good. We're really no good. The, the fans loved us, and there's still stories. And, it, you know, Howard used to play the pot song in the air all the time. That was our hit single, you know. Uh -huh. And one night after, I, I always say after the, sh after the show, but after the bar gig, we're in the dressing room. But we weren't in the dressing room. We were in the room where they keep the beer in the mm -hmm. back of a bar. And the other two guys in the band said, Jackie, we're going to. We're going to leave the band and start our own band. <laughs> I said, listen, if there's three guys in the band and two of them leave to start their own band, that's kicking me out of the fucking band. <laughs> Come on. That's the nicest way to say it, though. Right, right. <laughs> and, it, and the truth is I wrote all the songs. I mean, wrote most of the songs. I told most of the jokes. So it really was kind of my thing, but it, that doesn't help the story. And then I, I met some guys. By sheer, everything sheer accident. Mm -hmm. You know, years earlier, a guy had told me, a, a, a cra he called me from Peru and told me this really hysterical joke, and I started using it, and then- What um, was the joke? Well, I'll tell you in a second. And then uh, when I first started in comedy, I was working at a place called My Father's Place with my band, and I saw these guys that were auditioning for the gong show, and I went up to one of them and said, How'd you get to be a comedian? He said, easy, I had cards printed. <laughs> so, and it was Richie Menavini from the East. He shows me his card. So I started hanging out with the guys and going to Dixon's White House Inn. <laughs> and uh, and Richie and me were hanging out. And one night he walked in and said, uh, wow, I went on at Dangefields last night. Rodney loved me. He's going to use me all the time. And I was so jealous, I, yeah, I could, it, especially early on, because yeah. we're all clawing. I'd been clawing for 30 years. I sat down and typed up all the jokes that I knew that I thought could be twisted into what something Rodney would say, including that joke. My friend had called me. He called me from Peru. He was doing coke and selling coke, and he called me in the middle of the night from Peru because mm -hmm. he knew how much I'd like the joke. So <laughs> the next time I see Richie, I say, here, give these jokes to your friend Rodney. And he goes, man, Rodney wasn't there. I didn't even get on stage. 
I'm like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. He says, but I was there. I was there. Danny, I know this sounds like bullshit. He takes out a matchbook, uh-huh. and the address of Dangerfield is on the matchbook. I wrote it on the envelope and mailed it. And two days later, Rodney called me. Wow. And he bought four jokes, and we were off to the races. You know, And the joke that was his favorite joke of all time that the guy called me from Peru with yeah. was she was known as a two-bagger. You know, that's a girl so ugly, not only got to put a bag over her head, you got to put a bag over your own head in case her bag rips. <laughs> Which is just, he always said that was his greatest joke, and he loved me forever for that. <laughs> So um, what did he pay for a joke? 50 bucks a joke. 50 bucks. But it was known throughout the comedy community. You know, when I tried to tell people out on Stern, they told me I was nuts. Yeah. But it was a known thing in the, you know, everybody gave, gave, sold jokes to Rodney, you know, and it was hard to get a joke in his act or or get a joke onto the Carson show because he was, he knew what worked and he made them work and he went up at catch time and time again and time to, you know. What I loved about Rodney was just not only did he have the good jokes, but he also was the good joke, you know? It it was the perfect wedding of everything comedic. Yeah. And that's really how he was too. I was with him for a couple of weeks and just, you know, everything sucks, you know. (laughs) Turn on TV, black and white, no funny, no funny, you know. So it was great, and that's and that was uh, my kickoff into the whole thing. Just you know, so so Rodney kind of brought you in. No, no, he didn't. He, he no, he had nothing to do with with helping me in comedy or anything like that. You know, it was a couple of years later that I actually went away with him, but I didn't. I, I didn't go on stage with him. He just. But he gave you some validation and gave you. Oh, the, oh, you know, man! You know what God. you needed to say. Okay, I guess I. You no, know, I, I, know I, what I'm I doing. went to the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale. <clears throat> I had never been there. Mm-hmm. Richie Tinkett to this day loves me because I knew the comic strip had opened. It had just opened and I hadn't worked there because I'm brand new. I am brand new. It's like mm-hmm. 1980, Easter of 1980. And Rodney, I'm going with Rodney to Las Vegas. We said, come to Lauderdale too, you know, we'll go to Lauderdale, have some fun, you know. So we went to Lauderdale and I said to him, hey, there's a bunch of guys at this new club. We should go over to the club. And do you know who Louis Nye is? That was on the Steve Allen show, Louie Nye, Hi-Ho Steve Arino, and Don Knotts, and Tom Poston. The Steve Allen show was the Tonight Show before Carson. Sure, sure. So, um, so he says, yeah, Louie Nye's doing a one-man show. We went to see Louie. And said, so ask Louie if he wants to go. Louie Nye says, yes. So me, Rodney, his daughter, his son, and Louie Nye go to the comic strip. And I'd never been there before. And it's Easter. So the comic strip, in those days, there was no headliners and middle acts. It was three people on the show. And it was Easter. And it's Fort Lauderdale. And there's broads everywhere. So, of course, the guys that are there for the next week come in early because mm-hmm. they want to get a mouthful of Fort Lauderdale. So at the strip was Bob Nelson, Peter Bales, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, Dennis Wolfberg, and Glenn Hirsch. Mm-hmm. They're all there. And... I come walking in, hi, Jackie, and behind me is Rodney yeah. and their head spin. And behind them, behind him is Louis Nye. And these guys, like, they just couldn't believe And that my, was my introduction. Yeah. And I introduced him to Richie. And Richie says, remember me, Rodney? I met you a couple of years ago, blah, blah, blah. Rodney went up on stage, blew the roof off the place. And then every time he was ever in Florida, he'd find his way, you know, a moth to a flame. You know comedians. He'd yeah. find his way to the comic strip and do time. So Tinkin has been my guy for... 30 or 40 years. Yeah. This is great. And then I wound up going down and working down there so much. And that was, that, that was 
the the crazy place of you know. There's a lot of crazy comic stories, but that was the, holy shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> when did that place close? <clears throat> I he passed it to a guy named Jim Balazos, but that was that was what once I had started on the Stern Show regular. I wasn't going anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I think it closed like '86 or '87, something right. like that. But the the heyday was like. 79 to say 83 or something like that. And it was, oh, it's crazy. So, so tell me, you mentioned a little bit before that you, you were freaking out 10 years ago. You're freaking out now. Well, yeah, you know, it was like, I knew I, I knew if I wanted to, I, I couldn't, obviously couldn't remember what the hell I was talking about. We, uh, it was 1979 or late 78 and the band broke up and I had been playing guitar by myself and telling jokes and, mm-hmm. and singing songs. But I had been sending my songs and sending my songs, and, and they, you know, they were fun songs, and they still are, but they weren't going anywhere. And I realized if I want to ever eat or have a wife, or, this is a, probably the most, you know, in-depth conversation I ever had with myself. Is like you better do something, and I got the bright idea. Let me try telling these jokes on stage. Mm-hmm. What would I have done? You know, I got out of the war because of my knee. What would I have done? If I didn't, I don't know. Thank God I never danced that question. Yeah. You know, I didn't I didn't knock him dead in comedy, but I was on such a slow every month or two months I was doing better than I had been doing the month before. So I never sure. looked back and all of a sudden here we are in you know, fifty stations and we're making millions of dollars. But um I I don't know what I would have done. You Were know? you sad to give up music at first? You know, I I loved playing music, and I still do. I don't do it that much, but, uh, you know, it, it was a means to an end. I, I like performing. I like making people laugh and making people applaud. So, And I love telling people jokes. I I told jokes in rock and roll bands, which is unheard of. You know, in college, mm-hmm. we were a rock band, and I'd tell jokes. They're like, yeah. what the, what is he doing, you know? So... It was it was an easy leap, you know. As much as I love my songs, if I had been doing anything with them at all, but I was like, you know, it's funny because for years I would just never pick up my guitar. My girlfriend, who became my wife, Nancy, say, you know, you should play the guitar. I'm like, when I take my guitar out of my case, it's it's just so much, I'm melodramatic, <clears throat> but to me, it's like calling an old girlfriend that yeah. that you never got anywhere with. You know, like I, I'm going to pick up the guitar and all of a sudden I'm going, oh man, this was so fun and I was good at this and this is a good song. And I, no, it's not. No, you weren't. Put it away. Yeah, brought Don't up a lot of negativity for Right, you. right. It's, you know, and it, it, she always said, oh, you're so melodramatic. And, but it was absolutely true. And then, you but know, that I, means I, there must have been a lot of uh, pain, <laughs> pain in the fact that it didn't work out if you didn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the pain was so severely inflicted for all those years. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I didn't wake up one day and know I wasn't doing well in music. <laughs> yeah. You know, Rodney, I stole that joke from Rodney. Yeah, I quit music. And to give you an idea how well I was doing, I was the only one who knew I quit, you know. <laughs> you know. But um, but I always loved it and kept doing it. I finally circled back about uh, 10 years ago and did a CD of my songs, and, and I still love them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my one of my great songs of all time is was the... Uh, theme song to our crazy joke show and and for the first year i i sat and played guitar and told jokes and when i first met the guys at uh, richard m dixon's they used to come to my gigs eddie murphy bob nelson rob bartlett they would come to neptune pub because there was a microphone where they could tell jokes yeah you know what i mean it was there was an audience it was a place to go 
And um, and I just dug it. But when I started in comedy, I, I went. I had my guitar on. I'd only play like a like a like a two seconds of a parody or or a quick snippet of a song. But I did my whole act with my guitar on, and I did that for a year. I mean, I would take my guitar with me to gigs and everything. And then one time, I, it was so funny. It was such an eye opener. <clears throat> I was hosting. I was emceeing at the East Side Comedy Club. The East Side Comedy Club was just opening up. And we each took turns opening for Jackie Mason. He agreed to do the opening week. And this is like the Jackie district of New York that we're in right no, now. I think he, you know, he's right two, here. Two blocks he's, away. He's yeah. always here. He's always here. And yeah. uh, I always got great stories about that guy. Oh. <laughs> but too. Richie okay. ran into him in yeah. Florida, and he had been you know, out of the business for so long because of the Ed Sullivan thing and blah, blah, blah. And Richie talked him into coming home to Long Island. That show that we did at Cinnamon that I started, the Dial-A-Joke to promote Richie yeah. Mervini, who's the guy that I met who had the cards printed up, opened the Eastside Comedy Club. That was a direct growth out of the, the, the show in Huntington at the bar room. And he got Jackie Mason to open the club and we each took turns hosting the show that he was on that week. Mm -hmm. And I went up with my guitar and did a little of my stuff with the guitar and, you know, told a joke or two and then introduced the first comic. And then it's time to go up and introduce the next comic. It made no sense to go up and put on my guitar and say, you know, here's Danny LaBelle, you know. So yeah. I just went up and all of a sudden I was like, hey, this is kind of cool without the guitar. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah, it yeah. was almost that blatant a thing. I was like, wow, maybe, I, you know, maybe I don't need that thing. Right. Know? But, you know, I think coming from a musical background is very beneficial in comedy because it's just, it's all rhythmic, you know? It's just keeping a... It, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. It, it all it all really does tie in, you know? People who have a musical background are always better joke tellers, is it, you know, because they've got the... It's absolutely... And, you know? and it's funny because um, sometimes people are surprised that smart people like jokes. I'm like, of course they do. The smarter... The smarter people are, the harder they laugh at my jokes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I was working the other night. I don't want to get myself in trouble, but sometimes you tell a joke, and I, I'm I'm not looking for validation. I know what's funny. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I say to my audience? It's pompous. I say, folks, I know these jokes are good. I'm testing you. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? And you, you tell a joke, and it gets nothing. It's like <laughs> you want yeah. to see you stupid bastards. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but even Jack, I've seen Jackie Mason be up there and tell a joke and he'll say, that's the end. <laughs> you know, that's the whole joke. <laughs> so, so, so why are you freaking out now? Let's talk about that. You, no, no, no. I, what I, I was saying, I'm not freaking out any more or less than I ever did. Okay. I mean, you know, no, you, you know, I, there was no real concern. I, I. I just know I'm going to do fine. Yeah. You know, I've always known I was going to do fine. I had no right to know that right. or think that. You know, if you if you put me on the Stern Show in 1998 and we're on in 55 uh, cities and we're killing and the world knows me and I'm selling CDs and you connect the dots backwards, it looks like I knew exactly what I was doing. But right. if you take the guy at the end of a maze <laughs> and trace the line backwards, it looked like he knew where he was going too. Right, yeah. But I could have gone off course at any point so easily, you know. I, I just was very lucky, you know. I think only now do I finally feel like I'm going to be all right. I think for years I had no inclination that I was going to do anything good. It was never going to go well. And only now I think 
Recently, within like two months, I something hit me. I said, okay, you're going to be okay. That you, I, Danny, I could be lying. You know, I really think, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you think you're going to be okay because you have to think that. But I, I'm sure I was frightened to death. You mean you were like frightened, frightened, like what the hell is going to happen? Yeah. How old are you? You're not that very old. What are you? Uh, 34. Oh, you fuck. Is that young? You're saying that because oh, I'm yeah. young? God. Yeah. God, I'd kill to be 64. You know, it's funny. I'm, I tell everybody I'm 70 because every time you say you're 69, you have to explain that you're not making a dick joke. So uh -huh. I just said, fuck it, I'll just say I'm 70. People say, why don't you say you're 68? I said, well, that's almost as good a joke. So yeah. <laughs> 34. Yeah. No, you know, according to everybody I've talked to, you're brilliant. So you haven't got anything to worry about. Well, that's nice. So uh, once again, I could be lying. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a few minutes about the Howard Stern show before we get into the philosopher. What was the experience looking back now? Thorough, thorough, uh, thorough enjoyment every second of it. And uh -huh. people are surprised when I say that. It was like, you know, uh, I was, I got battered a lot, but that was the show. And I loved the show. Whenever I fought with them, it was about money. It was dollars and cents. It wasn't, I want more billing. I want people to not pick on me. It, you know, the show worked perfectly. But the fact is, the fact was, the show does work perfectly. And there's a lot of money being made in here. And I think you share a little more. But there's not a business in the world where the guy doesn't think he deserves more and the boss doesn't think so. And, and you know, and you got to come to terms with what am I worth? What am I not worth? Sure. But as far as the show itself, it was... It was a joyride. And, you know, <clears throat> for so many years, I took such pride because, you know, we always got interviewed, you know, and I was always much more accessible, you know, like Howard and Robin. You know, they didn't need to do press, but I always did press and I always had gigs to promote. Mm -hmm. So I took anything, you know, and and the, the interviews always say the same thing. They say, God, you know, in like 1988, wow, you guys are great, but how long can it last? You know, and then mm -hmm. 1992, it's like, wow, you guys are great. But how long can it last? You know, 1996, <laughs> you guys are so great. But how long? And it just lasted because Howard yeah. reinvented, you know, he syndicated the show. He, 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 we did the Channel 9 show and then did the pay-per-views and then the movie and the books. And, you know, and it just rolled and rolled and rolled. The first day I walked in there, 1983, they called me up. They got my albums. I sent them my albums blind, just like Rodney Dangerfield. Mm -hmm. I sent my albums blind to WNBC AM in New York City. I didn't know who anybody was. I didn't know Howard Stern. And he called me up and said, do you want to come in today? We're going to have a talent contest over the telephone. You could be a judge. You know, we we list your albums. You know, every joke, you're, you're a hoot. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's new in New York. You know, I got three comedy albums out. I look like I'm somebody. I made sure. them myself. You know, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I recorded them, edited them, sliced them up, yeah. paid for them. But I had three albums. Nobody else did, you yeah. know. And um, so he called me up, but I walked into 30 Rock and I sat down and it was me and Howard and Robin and Fred. And yeah. the last day I was on the air in March 2001, it was me and Howard and Robin and Fred. I mean, we were just there for a long time and I always took such pride in the fact we were together so long, so much longer than most marriages, most TV shows, sure. most anything. But then, you know, I'm the reason the, the quartet, quartet isn't still there. But all they had to do was give me a few more shekels, Dan. Yeah. 
but did but it, still, it was it was the greatest. Success. It was. Did it hurt for a long time when you when you wound up having to leave and, and you weren't? It's, no. it's almost like the second time you yeah were asked to leave a band. No, 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 because I wasn't asked to leave. You yeah. know, I, I. Well, I mean, you, you I, were. No, it's but the separation thing. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. You know, after the band broke up, I drive along and I on my way to gigs with my guitar and my amplifier. I have tears in my eyes. You know, you didn't realize that sitting around and bitching about the bar and setting up the equipment and bitching about the girls. You know, all of a sudden you got nobody to bitch about it with. It's, yeah. it's a lonely existence, which got you ready for comedy. Um, but. You know, what I really missed the worst was, you don't, how you could miss it, but sitting around with four or five people and laughing for five hours is a very odd situation. You just don't do that. Think about, oh, maybe you're, it's college and you're sitting around with four guys having some beers and having a lot of laughs. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a forced thing every morning, five days a week for years and years. It was... It was so great. We, I, I was so used to laughing so hard every day. It, didn't, it, it was innate. You didn't even know it, it was happening. You know, it, it was it was sad for many reasons, but it also was, I, I didn't regret what I did. I mean, I wanted to go back and then, but I knew that, you know, I wrote to him and said I would love to come back, but it was too late, but I knew it was too late. You know, it's, there were a lot of factors. You know, I put all the factors in the book. I put in the book, I said, look, I don't know. Here's what was happening. You can draw your own conclusion. Am yeah. I crazy? Am I not crazy? You know. But there must have been this time because it's happened to me. You know, I had a, a thing that didn't work out and I just beat myself up about it for a long time. Well, it's you like, know, it 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 was so odd because I knew I had to get divorced and I knew I had to quit drinking. And that wasn't going to happen while I was on the show. But I loved doing the show. Maybe and, it saved you in a way. You know, absolutely. And, you know, that's... That's the whole crazy thing. I didn't want the divorce to get played out on the air. I knew I would never quit drinking. I wasn't going to work five days a week, you know, and then not drink at the, you know, I just, I was caught up in, in the whole thing. And it was like one of those things where I just didn't know the way out. But instead of bailing out, I said, I got to get out of this Unless you give me this much money, <laughs> you know, because we all, we're all whores. So maybe you did it on purpose in a way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I always tell people, like, if you're a comedian and I said you want to work a gig in Alaska, you don't say no. Yeah. You say $100,000 and they tell you you're crazy so you don't get the gig. Yeah. They give you the $100,000, you go to Alaska. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and so I didn't price myself out of the ball game like that. Yeah. But I, I drew kind of a line in the sand and then, and I'm a hypocrite because I vacillate, you know, every girl I've ever gone out with, yeah, you're drive me crazy, you know, let's do this now, it's not, this is, you know, mm -hmm. and vastly, that's just, that's in my personality, so, yeah, yeah. but, and it was crazy, and then, but I realized that all of a sudden, I had way too much free time, and I said, I can't spend every day waiting for it to be five o'clock so I can start drinking, mm -hmm. so I said, the only way to do it is to have it never be five o'clock, so I just stopped drinking, you know, and just Nancy, like that, huh? and Nancy and I split up, but we had, Everybody's like, oh, Nancy left Jackie when he left the Stern show. But <clears throat> we had been living together, but for all practical purposes, we're, you know, cohabitating, you know, at best. You know, we, we got along all right, but, you know, we, we were, we, the reason we weren't divorced is we didn't have time. 
There was yeah. no passion anymore. There was nothing. It was no, just no. a, and a I friendship. Still I still love her to death. She lives two doors away. From here? At, no, from me in, on Long Island. Uh-huh. And my girlfriend and me double date with her and her boyfriend. I mean, you know. She, well, she's a huge part of your life. I mean, she was, huge part. She was and, there for when it all happened. But she was part of my life before anything happened. Then she came to work with me, and people were like, oh, she took half your money. She did not take half my money. She took her half of the money, which she earned every penny, you know. Yeah. And she's great, you know, but it, but, um, so we got split up and then, and I quit drinking and, and uh, you were so caught up. I mean, it's, it's been 16 years and 16 years ago, if somebody had told me you were not going to drink for 16 days, I would have just smiled at, you know, at the ludicrous thought of that, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, so it, it and, it's been wonderful. You know, it's been ups and downs. But when I was on the show, it was ups and downs because I was so tired all the time. And great things happen, bad things happen. You know, and you just learn to roll and roll. It's so funny because I get interviewed a lot and people always ask, well, what's it like to be able to sleep? And just today, yeah. you know, I had to see my my friend Lynn Shaw. We're going to go to breakfast at 9 o'clock. That's not early. Yeah. But really, I wake up at 8 o'clock and look over and just smile. Like, <laughs> you know. like Pe- People who- used to say, yeah, I know what it's like, man. I get up at 6.30 myself. I'm like, what? I said, I'm sitting in Manhattan at 6 o'clock. I came from Bayville. I'm sitting there at 6 o'clock. And you have, to be, you have to be up, Ready boy. To you go. have to be right. up, up. Well, two sips of coffee yeah. takes care of that. Yeah. You know. But it was, it, it was spectacular fun and no regrets. And we, we would... It was it was an insane asylum. It mm-hmm. really was. You think it was the the drinking or the the working that kind of alienated you and your ex wife from each other? We they, we had a, no, the drinking. You know, I, I had been drinking my whole life. She, I was drink, I drinking when she met me. You know that that didn't really cause too much of a riff. She didn't care. Uh, but we had troubles. You know. Um, she had tried so hard to be an actress and a songwriter and she's so talented and she wasn't getting any breaks and, and it wasn't fair. And I, and I wasn't as supportive as I should have been because I was going a million miles an hour myself. And, uh, we were very unsuccessful, uh, doing in vitro fertilization. And that, that really hurt us. There were no, at the time there were no, you know, there was no internet and there was no, groups where you could sit around and say how horrible it is and how heartbreaking it is and how, how what a wedge it's putting in your relationship. So we just thought that maybe, you know, maybe it was just us. But, you know, it, it and we we made it 20 years, which is yeah. not, a, no, which is not big, bad. You know, yeah. day and night, working together, everything like that. And uh, it was great, you know. But, so, uh, you know, things, the dominoes just fell the way they fell, you know. I wound up, it was funny because, we lived in Bayville. We live in Bayville. It's a small town. And right around the, the heart of Bayville, the houses are very small because it's a beach town. So mm-hmm. the houses are small. So we bought us, and slowly but surely, we're buying houses closer to the water. We're trying to get to the water. Yeah. And Howard used to torture me on the air, how I bought all these shacks and want to waste <laughs> the money, you know. And meanwhile, nobody has the brains to realize that buying real estate really isn't the world's worst investment, you know? <laughs> and then just as we we're about to break up, this house on the water, right on Long Island Sound became available. And we are like, divorce or no divorce, we're getting that house. And so we got it. And then I got the house and she got three other houses. Yeah. And people were like, she got three houses and you got one? But it, it was an absolute fair trade. And yeah. 
you know, now she lives in one of them two doors from me, and I live on the water, on the sound, and it's like I live in heaven. You, know, you guys never really separated. You just no, were, no, no. Just put a little we're, space. Well, and you. we had to separate all the business and everything. Like no, we we were, you know, we didn't see each other every five seconds. You know, we we mm -hmm. remained close, and then you know, it wasn't. It wasn't all a, a ride through Cherryville. Don't get me wrong, but it's mm -hmm. just, you know, and it was as amicable as it could possibly be, and and still wonderful, you know. That seems like it was a huge transitional time in your life, going from such a high with this job that was probably just a constant adrenaline rush, and then yeah, just, well, not yeah, but that yeah. But speaking of a constant high and adrenaline rush, is drinking, you know, yeah. and even even a wife. Even if you're fighting, that's a lot of input and and living with somebody. So all of a sudden, it's like living you just alone, pulled the plug out. just like yeah. pulling the plug out of your life. You know, I, I I lost my job, I lost my booze, I lost my wife, and moved into a house by myself. I'd never lived alone by myself ever that I could remember. And those are four things that they, if you read any psych psychiatric manual or and talk to anybody, if you do any of those four things, they say, don't change anything else. Mm -hmm. If you get divorced, don't change anything else in your life. If you quit drinking, don't change anything because you need everything, the, the building base around you to support that action. And I just, you know, the thing I didn't do is just let the air out of my tires in my car. <laughs> But, the, this but is, I got through it, you know. What yeah. doesn't kill us makes us strong. I mean, you know? It's like a total identity uh, crisis can can take place there, it, you know. But, yeah, but you know what? I, luckily, luckily, I'm a very headstrong jerk, and it's so funny because I've always said they used to always torture me because I'm a hippie, and I really am a hippie. I was in the late sixties. I did not have a penny, and I, I was happy as a clam most of the time, mm -hmm. some of the time. So you know, and they're like, well. How could you say you're a hippie and you don't care about money? You left the show over money. I said, well, it, not, it, it's, it was more about fairness. It, yeah, it was more it, about fairness than it was about the dollars and cents. And nobody, it, uh, you know. I, I believe it. I think it's it's just about a matter of respect or or just feeling, you know, worthy. Right, right. Because, right. you know, a big part in it. I didn't, I wasn't 50% of him and I wasn't 5% of him. But God damn it, if I was 1% of him, you know, ka-ching. It, it was almost like you were looking for him to say, I love you in a weird way. Well, but you know, that, he'll, he said that all day. You but know, but I mean, go, to he, say it is one, one thing, thing but, you know. Right, right. But, but you were it's saying, a lot cheaper. you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and who knows? You know, it's, you can get into the, into the analysis of the whole thing because you get to a point where Howard has so much money, it couldn't have been about money. Right. You know, if you're at the very, very, very top of your game, the only way to feel bigger about it is to have done it by yourself. And the minute I start saying, Danny, here's a few dollars, thanks for the help. So it was yeah. an e you think it was an ego thing? I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. All I can do is speculate. All I know is I'm not on the show anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was because I asked for more money and I didn't get it. <clears throat> it was out of reason. I, don't, I really don't know. But what, what thrills me is that 16 years later, people are still debating it like it was yesterday. You know, mm -hmm. I go to a gig and people come up and say, man, we really miss you on the air. I'm like, that was 16 years ago. I mean, that's, that, that's flattering. I mean, mm -hmm. I know they play reruns and stuff, but, you know, still, sure. it's, you know. Yeah, but you were a big part of the show. And 
And that show is now a big part of your identity. That's how people... And it always will be. People like, oh, oh, you're writing a book about the show? You can't leave it alone? You know, you're still sponging off how... No, that was 20 years of my life. You know, if I'm I writing think, a story in my life, what am I going to say? Oh, well, by the way, I was on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like, you know, you know, more extreme example. It's like asking one of the Beatles to pretend they weren't a Beatle at one point, you know? It's not, you can't disassociate from something that huge. You know, we, we did a week live from Abbey Road Studios in London, which was from the actual room where the Beatles did it all. I mean, I get the chills just telling you that. But we're getting guests. It was the it was the what the, the Princess Trust concert, and it was the we had the Bee Gees and you know Rod Stewart and, and Eric Clapton. I mean, it was amazing. And we're broadcasting from the up in the bowels of of the theater. It's just it couldn't be Elton John. You know, so exciting. And Gary was trying to book guests, and you know you you get the sheet saying who the available guests are and at the time. Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones was banging a 14-year-old girl. And she had a publicist. And Gary wanted to book her on the show and call the publicist. And the publicist said she'd love to do the show. But she doesn't want to talk about Bill Wyman. (laughs) A 14-year-old girl who's banging a Rolling Stone. Yeah. She'll come on and talk about anything but that. Yeah. That's the most blatant example of, of what we're talking about, you know. Yeah, yeah. What what Stern show? I don't want to talk did they about. did they book her anyway and try no, and get no, it out of her? No, Was no. that so? It's just a resp- they say they wanted to. Do- Were there examples like that where they said we don't want to talk about this? And go okay, we'll just get them in know, and get them to talk always, about it. You know, there were all, always elephants in the room, and, right? You know. But and and you know sometimes Howard would go right to it, and sometimes it, it always depended, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, maybe with a fourteen-year-old, you have to have more sensitivity. Yeah, no, that was that was just a crazy thing. But you know, so yeah, it's it's, it's you know, once you're associated with such a huge thing, it is a part of your identity. You it, know, it really is, and always was, and um, and I and I loved it. And people, you know, somebody I had a picture the other day. John Stutter and John did a. Uh, a music video when he had a deal with Atlantic and he made a music video in the videos. Like I, I put up a picture on, on my Twitter the other day and it was me and stuttering John and Gilbert Gottfried and Gene Simmons from kiss and Barry Williams from the, the Partridge family and sting. I mean, it's an amazing array of people and it's the greatest picture. And underneath people put, Yeah. You trashed the hell out of the show in your book, but you're still sponging. You know, first of all, it was a picture from John's video, but there's no trashing of the show. Yeah. This this book is a love letter to the show. It's people tough just, that you have to deal with this chorus of people. These, they just na- assume, yeah, the, you know, these nameless, faceless voices that are always coming at you. But but you know, if you did comedy, you know that you hear them loud and clear. If mm-hmm. you're on stage. And you're killing 200 people or 600 people, and there's somebody staring at you. That's all you can see. Mm-hmm. You don't see the 499 <laughs> people living. You see that one son of a bitch who's yeah. like, got a sour face, you know. <laughs> That's right. But everybody sees them. Yeah. You know, millions of years ago, um, Steve Allen put a, put out he put out a couple books like the Funny Men or the Funny People, and each comic did a, did a different story. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget Bill Cosby's chapter was called the face 
And I said, holy Christ. <laughs> He's this famous comedian experienced what we all experienced. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Even playing in a band, you know, I'm sitting there playing my songs and everybody's having fun. You look and somebody's like, you just want to stop and say, what's wrong? Right. You know, cheer up, you know. But dude, what, are you, what are you going to do? How, how'd you get through that tough period when you lost your your, your job, your wife, your addiction? I, I, uh, I smoked pot, but not tons. Uh, I sat on my porch. I drank coffee. I hung around my family. I, you know, it was, it was funny because after a couple of weeks of not drinking, I'm like, you know, anybody can sit home and not drink. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're in your own little bubble. I said, what I got to do is I got to go out. And my friend Burf, he said, what you got to do is go to all the, all the millions of parties that you were always invited to all those years that you couldn't go to because you had to be up at 4.30. So I just started going to everything. And it was so funny. And I've talked to so many people that have quit drinking. Now there's so many people that have quit drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, just like there's so so few people smoking cigarettes on the street now. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, it's it's not odd to be in a group of 10 people and have five guys be sober. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, and it becomes more and more. But I was like, I, I can't go to a bar. I'm going to go in a bar. People are going to be, what are you doing in here, you imposter? Yeah. You're not drinking. Get out of here. Yeah. Meanwhile, I go in a bar and get a Diet Coke and put a stir in it and a lime. Not only does nobody know, nobody cares. Right. <laughs> and I also found out that I'm sitting there drinking my Diet Coke and I'm talking to somebody and they're holding their drink for an hour. And I'm like, are you going to drink that or what? You know, because I didn't realize that, you know, everybody's not pounding them yes, down. They yeah. get the drink and they're walking around being sociable. And I realized I could go to anything. Yeah. And I say, oh, I'm not, I'm not as funny when I'm not drinking. They're like, what? You're twice as witty when you, and you get that through your head. Yeah. You know, I, I it never even goes through my head. And I, my family drinks like crazy and they, they all nuts and everybody's nuts. And, and I'm there and, you know, if I'm out with a bunch of guys, or comics or whatever, and we go somewhere, if people start getting stupid, mm-hmm. you know, like repeating themselves or coming, you know, I just leave. Yeah. You know, and that, and we're we're older now, so it doesn't happen all the time. You know, sometimes, but, sure. you know, if you're with a bunch of people or there's a bunch of fans and they're especially drunk, you know, I, I'm very polite, but, you know, I, I leave. Some people say when you get sober, you often replace one addiction with another. Did that happen for you? I had always smoked pot. I didn't smoke a lot of pot. I probably smoked more pot after I quit drinking than I used to. But no, you know, like, um, because pot I could take or leave. You know, I always feel bad when I do interviews because I always say the same crap, but it all, it fits. Mm -hmm. I always say that, you know, I could, you know, I could smoke pot and then not smoke pot for a month, you know, like, like, so it's. Do I love it? Yes. Will, will, will I do it a lot? Yeah, sometimes, and but then sometimes I don't. It's but I can take it or leave it, and that's the that's the operative phrase. Mm-hmm. And people say that's so great. You quit drinking, and I'm like, to me, I did not win the battle. To me, winning the battle would be we get done with this and let's let's go out to dinner, and I have a bloody mary with dinner. Mm-hmm and go home, you know, or go out to dinner with my wife and or my girlfriend and have a few glasses of wine and then not think about it. Or even go out and get destroyed at a party and then, and then not be- think about it for a couple of weeks. <clears throat> I always said that I wish that booze 
was like tuna fish to me. And I wish tuna fish was like booze for me. <laughs> That's perfect. You got to put that quote under the picture of us. We look like the number 10. <laughs> yeah. So, no, no, shut up. So, I know, but seriously, because I could, there's nothing I love more than a tuna fish sandwich. Really. And I could have a tuna fish sandwich today and enjoy it more than anything in the world. And I could have another one tomorrow, but I might not have another one for a month. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be like, God damn, I wish sure. I, you know. But then I might have tuna fish every day for three, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it, yeah. In other words, it's not, it's not prioritized up there. It doesn't trigger anything. Right, like, and I, yeah. I would love to think, and now do I think I could, I really do think I could have a couple of beers, but I ain't risking it. I wouldn't risk it. I'll tell you, when when I get, I go through periods of, good periods of sobriety with eating. You know, I get. No, are you a drinker or a pothead or any of that? I mean, for a while I, w I had a problem with alcohol and then I just replaced it with food. And then. Uh, now, is that is that a battle for you? The food, yeah. The food's a huge battle for me because sometimes I'll get sober with the food and I'll eat, I'll start eating right and dropping the weight and it comes off you know, not too slowly, you know, and I'm doing great. And then I go, okay, let me just try one of these. Th and the next thing I know, I'm sucked back in and I'm eating mindlessly. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in a, fi a, a fog, you know, and, and, uh, and I just put on, you know, 30 pounds. And it's, I absolutely, when I met my girlfriend two years ago, I was, I, for eight years, I was, I was like in 175. I, I, my, my nephew makes fun of me. He drew a picture of me holding a barrel and said, high school weight. Because they used to say, look at me, I'm high school weight. Yeah. I had a girlfriend who, I, I, one day I said to her, I still look good? She said, no, you really got a big belly. You really got to do something about it. And I said, ah. And she, and she said, if you get down to 180, I will do something pretty lewd and lascivious too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I started losing weight. I went all the way to 170, and I just kept it off for so long. I mean, I'm putting on size 32 pants, and they fit loose, and I'm like, I was in heaven forever. I did. I walked on the beach. I swam. I rode my bike. I didn't eat bread. I didn't eat pizza, but it was my life. I was settled in. Yeah. And when I met my girlfriend now, I was still pretty skinny. And I guess one day I said, well, I can have a, you know, I can have a beer. I can have a glass of wine. I can have a piece of bread. Yeah. I can have some pasta. And, and you know, it. I'm not a big guy, but I'm 20 or 25 pounds more than when I met her. It's and it's sugar, so yeah. easy. Yeah. Because the carbs turn into sugar. And now they get all the studies that show sugar is more addictive than cocaine. So it's, you know. If, if I have ice cream or chocolate or something in my refrigerator, I know where it is. Mm -hmm. Just like if you have Coke and you're, yeah. and you know, you know where you're Coke and it's yeah. like, I, I could, like the good humor man, reach in the freezer and take out the piece of chocolate. Yeah, it's funny to think of those ice cream trucks as the first dealers. <laughs> right, exactly. For kids, yeah. So, so what did, do you do anything to combat it? Because those stupid diets, all that shit doesn't work. It's it's got to be lifestyle. Yeah, it's it is. It's only it's only lifestyle. And the only thing I, I work with a nutritionist and a trainer, and basically it's it's just getting into a different mindset of training yourself to eat more. You know, they call it intuitive eating. It's just 
being more in touch with your body and your so you want to do the right thing i want to do the right thing i i'm i'm constantly struggling with it i work uh once a week in a rehab in malibu with kids who have drug addictions and i i do this with them it's not you can't hear it anywhere because it's all you know for their protection it can't go out right but i do a podcast with these kids and we joke around and we laugh and we just talk about addiction and it it's all the same Whatever it is, it's the same. Right. And, and you totally get it, and you totally know what's going on. You know, it's just so hard to get it through your head. The old, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and it really is one step after the other after the other. And the, not only the steps, but not stepping backwards and not stepping to the side, you know? It's so hard. You know, and my, I lost my close friend last week. Uh, you probably knew him, Ralphie May. I, I didn't know him well. I only met him a couple times in passing. And I, I used to tour with him for five years. I was his opener. And we both had the same food addiction. And I, Would you guys eat like cows afterwards? You know, there the was show? a time when I really thought it, I really thought we were eating like cows. I, we, we, uh, I didn't mean that. that no, that but, I, but I, I mean, that's literally, there was a moment in time. We, were, we did the Pittsburgh Improv. And uh, then we went to see a Steelers game. It was the greatest day ever. And then we smoked a whole bunch of pot and went out to the uh, Capitol Grill. And we're and and Ralphie because he, he was a millionaire. He would he would just order everything. Steaks and, and shrimps. It, and it was it was like to me, it was like the addict in me was just like you know oh my god this guy's just just covered the table with a with mountains of coke you know yeah, you're in heaven you know it's fiesta grande and and you just had a killer show so that whole reward thing kicks in which is the devil in disguise yeah we all know that not even so much in disguise you know right yeah and we're sitting there and he's ordered steaks and every kind of side and everything in the world and it just goes quiet we're just eating we're both just sort of like feeding the addiction and i just I remember, like, because I was high also, I got very into my head about it. And I started thinking, we're just like two cows grazing right now. (laughs) (laughs) And that stayed in your mind. (laughs) That stayed in my head. I was just, and then I thought, you know, I started thinking our hearts are going to explode inside of us. This is, and, uh, and I started freaking out. And I look over at him, and he's just like, you know, happy as, as hell. And he goes, what's going on, Danny? <laughs> and I go, nothing, nothing. No, no, I'm fine. And then his heart did explode in him, and and, and I'm terrified of it. You know, I, I want to live. I want to be now, healthy. Now, you have a beautiful wife. Is she yeah. cook for you? Or yeah, do you live at home, or are you on the road a lot? I don't know. Yeah, a little of both, you know. Now I've been back on the road a lot more. I was at home for a while. But uh, yeah, she's she cooks for me now, and we're trying. I mean, we're always. I'm sure I'm, she's a hundred percent supportive. Yeah, she is. She's wonderful. It's just it's really hard. I mean, I do really well for a few months, and then I slip up, and then the next thing I know, like what happened to all that work, you know? And then I just have to keep getting back on. And, and, and you got you mean you're young now. You know, all yeah. you gotta do is just get that lifestyle. Well, Ralphie was in. only 40, 45 or something like that. He was, he was very, very big, right? Yeah, like crazy big. Yeah, but I, I mean, it kills me, especially this week because it's so such an open wound, and I see people on Facebook posting and saying, "Ah, well, he did it to himself," you know. 
And it's like they wouldn't say that if he died of heroin like Hedberg or something. You right, know, they, right, right, right. They, there's much more sensitivity and sympathy. But when people are overweight, you just think, well, that just that guy just loves yeah, burgers. Yeah, yeah, you know? he, right. He could have just kicked <laughs> yeah. out in a second. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole goddamn country is overweight. Yeah. You know. But uh, they, you know, so let you know what, let it be a wake up call. You know. Yeah. The hell with yourself. Do that for him, or do that for his family, and you know, so you can say, well, you know, something positive came out of it. You know. Right. It's you know the whole thing. It it it's really hard. It's all very hard. You know. And now with the world so crazy that like you know. You want to know? I don't now. even buy yeah. green bananas. You know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. What, what do you think? Should we look at this philosopher now? I'll do anything you want. You're a joy. This is great. The philosopher that Alex picked out for you is a guy named Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham. And he says, what you have in common with him is that he says, Jackie had some brushes with the law. So I picked a philosopher of law. So what were the brushes of the law? I know I read on your Wikipedia, you were arrested four times. Was it all drinking related <clears throat> stuff or? In, uh, it's, it always has the plays into it. In um, between freshman and sophomore year of college, I worked at a country club, Pipe and Rock Club, which is one of the Pipe and Rock Club and Creek Club are the two ultimate blue blood clubs, like in the world on the North Shore of Long Island. Like the Kennedys couldn't get into Pipe and Rock Club because they were Catholic, you know, one of those type mm -hmm. things. So I worked there forever as a busboy and as dishwasher, and I was very poor. Between college and uh, between college years, freshman and sophomore year, and I just kind of discovered weed. Maybe it was between sophomore and junior, and uh, I bought a big hunk of hash, mm -hmm. and that's how I was living. I'd sell a piece of hash and use the money to go drinking. I'd smoke some of the hash. You know, sure. I wasn't a dealer. I mean, that was just my commerce. Right. <clears throat> and I worked at the country club, and it was my my parents' anniversary, and they didn't get along, but still their anniversary. And I had no money. And they got a delivery of chairs at the, at the club. And they were these beautiful gold folding chairs that they had hundreds and hundreds of that they'd put out when they had these huge 600 person debutante parties. And there were like four in a box, these big old boxes. I had a 1961 uh, light blue uh, Chrysler Imperial car. And I was working late as a dishwasher, so I backed my car down to the kitchen entrance in the back and opened my trunk and put this big box with four chairs in, in my trunk. That's going to be my parents' anniversary. Yeah. And I had my hash, and I was meeting a bunch of guys, so I literally stole an industrial-sized roll of aluminum foil. Okay. I mean, like eight inches in diameter uh -huh. to use a two-piece, two-inch piece of foil to smoke. Right. And <clears throat> so that's in my car. And me and these guys, oh, I got the hash is in a baggie in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And me and these guys go out and get so drunk. And we come back at three or four in the morning, whatever time it was in those days, the, the bars were open. And we stayed open. We stayed out until they threw us out. And we were all, we had all met at the bowling alley parking lot in Oyster Bay. So we pull into the bowling alley parking lot. Our, it's just our three cars. And of course, we're drunk and we're recounting the night and we're, you know, we're stoned as hell and we're yakking away, blah, 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 blah. And a cop sees three or four of us stand there in the bowling alley parking lot at four in the morning. What are we up to? So he pulls up and it's pretty apparent that we're 
bombed as hell. And he shines the flashlight. And here's this immense roll of aluminum foil that's there for no, you know, what the hell's going on? What are you guys doing? You know, I was just drinking. And he said, what the hell's going on? And, and I'm sure we weren't making any sense. And it was very weird. And for whatever reason, he said, open that trunk. So I opened the trunk and I could still see it. This is a big box, like two foot by two. It was a huge trunk. It was when the cars were as big as they could get. 1961 was when they had the hugest fins, you can imagine, and uh -huh. a huge trunk. And here's this huge box. And in magic marker, it says, two, Piping Rock Club, Locust Valley, New York. Uh -huh. And the cop says, where'd you get those? And I said, I, I bought them. <laughs> he said, Try again. And I said, um, they gave them to me. And he said, one more time. And I said, I stole them. And he said, bingo. I swear to God. <laughs> so he tells the guys, he says, get the hell out of here. Your friend's going to jail. So I'm freaked out because I got hash on me. This, yeah. I, this is a gospel story. I don't even think this is in the book. I, I got the whole sequel written and everything. So I take the baggie out of my pocket. And you've probably, well, you're too young, but. People used to almost get busted all the time and try and swallow pot. I had hash in a baggie, you know, uh -huh. a little saran wrap baggie, yeah. or whatever it's made out of. I tried to swallow it. I put it in my mouth and tried to swallow it and got caught in my throat. And I was Jeez. like, and I went eh! like that. To, and I was sure that the cop was going to go, what are you trying to swallow pot? You know, yeah. what I mean? but he didn't hear it. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I got this baggie with fucking hash and he's going to take me to jail. Yeah. And I don't know what to do. And I threw it yeah. as far as I could. But it was light. So it had no heft. Yeah. And it went five feet. He called for backup. The sergeant comes pulling to the bowline parking lot and pulls on top of the baggie. Jeez. So it's underneath the car. That's beautiful. It was like unbelievable. So I go to jail. I spend the night in jail. Uh I wake up in the morning hungover. I hardly remember what happened. And they take me down in front of the judge. And my father's there and the, the general manager of the country club. And I'm shaking like a leaf because I'm hungover. And the judge is like, what's wrong with you, son? Sergeant, check his arms. And I'm yeah. like, judge, I'm hungover. I'm not doing heroin. My yeah. father, now my father thinks I'm an addict, you know. Uh -huh. And so the, Roger Ross was the general manager. He said, listen, Jackie's an idiot, but we're not going to press charges. And he said, get your stuff together. All the way home, my father's yelling at me like, he's pissed. He is pissed. Meanwhile, we're supposed to go to the Newport Folk Festival that day, and I'm driving. Mm -hmm. And my five friends are in my house waiting. You don't have to believe any of this. We go back to down to the bowling alley. <laughs> we pull into the bowling alley parking lot, and there's the baggie lying there with the hash. I get out of the car, I go to the car, and I pretended it didn't start. Yeah. I said, oh, Pop, this, this happens all the time. I'll be right up. He said, all right. He takes off. I take the baggie, put it in my pocket. I drive up, walk in, and my, oh, the whole time on the way home, my father's like, you're not going anywhere. You are not going anywhere. Don't yeah. think you're going anywhere. Not with, not with our car. You're not going anywhere, blah, blah, blah. The car he had was from work. And I come walking in. It's, it's the kitchen table of that house I described to you. Yeah. I got five friends sitting. They're all sitting around drinking beer, and they're laughing like, ah, your father's trying to tell us you're not going. You know. Like, yeah. And the peer pressure was overwhelming, and he couldn't say anything. And next thing you know, me and my friends are in the car 
on the way to Newport, smoking the hash. <laughs> and that was my first time in jail. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good intro into our uh, into and so our- and so the, and there's other you know drunken disorderly at the at the U of M Michigan State game, uh, DWI in Virginia Beach. I fell asleep at a traffic light. Uh, DWI in in Rye, New York, because I was driving down the middle of the road, keeping the white line in the middle of the car so I wouldn't hit anything. <laughs> and, uh, and then I didn't have enough money for a muffler ticket on Staten Island, and I went to jail. And and I also had an out, outstanding muffler ticket in in uh, East Lansing, Michigan. I went to jail there. Those are some of the toughest guys in the joint, and the guys with outstanding muffler tickets. You know, I, I, I the greatest stories. I mean, when I got the when I didn't have enough money for my speeding ticket on Staten Island, the judge said fifty bucks. You know, I thought it was going to be twenty, and I said. I said, well, I'll go home and get the rest of the money. He said, what are you, crazy? Mm-hmm. So my friend had to leave from Staten Island, go back to Manhattan, where luckily he lived in Manhattan to get money. I, I was in, in jail in Staten Island. Then they come around with the bus and pick everybody up and take, you know, they stop at each of the precincts mm-hmm. and took us all to the Brooklyn House of Detention. So I literally was in a van with, you know, it was just like the Arlo Guthrie thing. People are saying yeah. what they did. I murdered my wife. I stole a car. What'd you do? You know, I didn't have enough money for my speeding ticket, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like I was an outcast, you know. <laughs> and it was, it was such an exciting experience, but forget about being scared. Yeah. You know, I remember like it was yesterday, like one guy, a fancy looking guy, he got in the thing and they closed the door and he took like a hat pin out or something and just, Took off his hand, handcuffs, just relaxed until we got, and then he put them back on. You know, these got hardened. You know, and that, none of that's in the book. None, none of the jail stuff. That that's a whole. It's all. That's a whole great, great, great chapter. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right, well, let's take a look at uh, the guy who was a philosopher of law, Bentham. I'll give you a little synopsis here. Bentham thinks the concept of natural rights is a selfish fantasy. Natural rights. Well, that's, I think, what George Carlin used to always talk about. Nobody has rights. That's a... Natural rights wait, to, to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You mean the, the right to make a living or the right to... I'm assuming those things are what they mean by natural rights. Be, I don't know, but I think that that's got to be what it is. It's selfish fantasy. Because I remember Carlin used to say, you don't have any rights. You think you have rights? Nobody has rights. It's a, it's a selfish fantasy. It's a... We have this entitlement that we have rights because we were told we have rights. But how come other people in other different countries, they don't have the same rights? Rights are just made up. But Well, you know, there are people that are so wacky. To them, you should have the right to, not, to drive where you want. You don't have to be on the roads. You don't have to pay attention to the stop signs. You know what I mean? There's all mm-hmm. kinds of wackiness. You know, freedom is, a, is an odd word. You know, you're not free to drive as fast as you want. You know, there's certain mores that you have to go by. Right. But, but um, to think you should be free, I, I, I don't know how they would possibly see that as selfish. You know, selfish, if, you, if you're not going to, you know, be a, you got to be a member of society, and you really do to mm-hmm. a certain extent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And well, I mean, out, outlaw, you know, it's it's really, the, the, you know, 
the term outlaw, like, uh, you know, like when you're a kid in school, the guy talks out in class, you know. Yeah. He's an outlaw, you know. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's yeah. all pretty relative, you know. Sure. And yesterday's outlaws aren't outlaws anymore. No, no, know? no. Well, you know, yesterday's vices are today's habits and all that. You right. Know? Well, let's continue on here. Let's see. Everyone has their own idea of what rights they deserve. And a lot of these, that's like what you were just saying about people who feel they don't, they have a right to go through a stop sign. And a lot of these are just self-interest. He says, Jeffrey Dahmer thinks that he has the right to eat people, but he's crazy. If everybody has unbounded liberty, nothing stops them from hurting others. Laws are where our rights actually come from because laws are concrete and based on human action and reason. If we say we have natural rights, we have not established a logical reason. Our only justification is we want them because they make us feel good. This selfishness could break down our ability to be actually good to one another. The point of laws is to decrease the suffering of most people. To do this, laws must be based on greater good, not individual desire. I was just going to say greater good. Now, I take umbrage with it. I don't know enough about Jeffrey Dahmer, but did he? He's just kind of saying that, right? Jeffrey Dahmer didn't really think he he had the right. He didn't think he was doing something he was entitled to do. I I, I should clarify that this what I just read was written by Alex. This synopsis. This is Alex breaking down. Oh, oh, oh. Jeremy uh, Bentham for us. He right. he he. So he's in other saying, words, Jeffrey yeah. Dahmer was dumb enough to do that, and maybe he thought it was fine to do that. Right. But I I would think he had to know how heinous it was, and and just plowed ahead anyway. So do you think when people do something knowing that it's heinous, they still must think, I have the right to do this? Or do you think they're thinking, I don't have the right to do this, but I'm going to do it? I would think more so they know they don't have the right to do this, that they're doing something hurtful. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of actions like that, like a Jeffrey Dahmer, I, I, not knowing anything, I just always assumed there was a get even thing in there. Mm-hmm. You know, like not not like, hey, today's a nice day and I had a lovely childhood, but I wonder what he tastes like. Mm-hmm. You know, that just doesn't follow. You know, <laughs> well, I, I as far as the freedoms, like um, I'm so against victimless crimes. I mean, you know, people smoking pot. I mean, if if you if was inflicting anything on other people, like these, so many of the arguments are so tired. You know. People saying, well, you know, you get drunk, people people get in uh, car accidents, but if you smoke pot, they don't. That's an old adage, and it's an old, but it's it's no less true than it was the first time somebody said it. No, mm-hmm. you're not endangering anybody by smoking pot. And now it's driving people crazy because it's doing great things for people. You know, alcohol is killing us, and, you know, food is killing us, and pot's not, you know, pot makes you a little hungry, you know, the, why, mm-hmm. why not blame the, you know, the plumpness of America on pot? And, and and they'll never stop fighting the whole uh, prostitution thing. You're never, ever, ever going to stop prostitution. You know, people are going to drink and they're going to smoke pot and they're going to fuck and they just are. You're not going to stop them. So mm-hmm. you might as well do what makes sense. Look at Denver and Colorado's making gazillions of dollars with, with legal pot. Right. You know, now I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of ramifications and reasons why it sucks and everything like that, but it's certainly certainly worth a try, you know. Yeah, I had an interesting uh, talk with a woman last week who I met. She's traveling 
the country in an RV with her husband and kids. And she lost her father and brother to, to drugs, I think to heroin or, or meth, one of them, maybe one and one. And she said she was, she, she was always like the biggest advocate for legalizing pot. And she got to Colorado with her little kids and they're walking down the sidewalk and they're walking through clouds of pot because everybody's out smoking them. And she changed her whole opinion on it, which I thought was interesting just because, you know, from her perspective, losing a brother, losing a father to drugs, she didn't want her kids exposed to drugs openly on the sidewalk like that. I, I, I'd never thought about it in those terms. You, you know, it, the whole stepping stone thing and all that, it's like, it's, it's, it's a very interesting debate and it always has been. Um, and then the whole opioid thing that comes out of nowhere, you know, <clears throat> here we have pot that's not harmful or depending on who you talk to. And it's something that man, you know, that God gave us or whoever gave us that you can grow. And here's these drug companies killing America. Mm -hmm. And they're making money and killing America. And, it, and everybody's watching it happen. I'm like, I mean, I, I can't say anything because I'm not doing anything about it. But Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, go in there and hit these guys with a sledgehammer and say, stop selling that, that you know. Yeah. Right. But freedoms, freedoms are, it is, it is very strange. Like, uh, you know, how much, how much rope do you give people? You know, how right. much freedom to give people? It's, it's you know, they, they always said that, uh, I, you know, I read it a couple of places and it could be a lie, but Robert Downey Jr. was a madman. Mm -hmm. He's running around naked in, in Los Angeles, and he's so high out of his mind. And supposedly he was raised in a family where they were hippies, and they just walked around naked, getting high. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, that should be healthy. Yeah, it made him nuttier as a fucking fruitcake, you know? I mean, that, made, that, that could all be totally untrue. But, yeah. you know, like for every, for every story and for every theory, there's something that'll cement it and something that'll totally unseat it you know so yeah it's interesting when you try and figure out what is child abuse because you go back to that woman with her kids walking through the pot is that child abuse is it child abuse to tell your kids to be naked or is that just a different culture you're trying to when you're programming a human being what should be allowed right you would like to think that we innately know what is right and what is wrong. But what I think is right and you think is wrong and what you think is right, you know, and and let the games begin, you know, like we're <laughs> off to the races. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it is interesting when you when you start thinking about who are the people who are deciding what I can and My can't do. My mother said it was fine to fart at the dinner table, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> it's <laughs> you cultural. Know? Yeah, right, right. So I'll read you a little bit about uh, Jeremy... Bentham, so we could get an idea of who he was. From where? This is from his Wikipedia. No, I mean, where's <laughs> oh. he from? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. Jeremy Bentham was born February 15th, 1748, and lived until June 6th, 1832. He was an English philosopher, a jurist, a social reformer, and he was regarded as the founder of what's called modern utilitarianism. I'm not sure much about that. Maybe it'll come up later in the reading here. Bentham defined as the fundamental axiom of his philosophy, the principle that it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong. So it's, again, the greater good. 
which I would always, you know, you know, it's it's that reduces it to the smartest. Like, I'm not a religious guy at all. All the religion anybody needs is do unto others the way you'd have them do unto the golden rule is all the religion you need. It's mm -hmm. all, you know, don't do any harm. I think that know? that's um, from uh, Hillel, um, who was a famous rabbi, and somebody went to him and said, teach me the entire Torah on one foot. And he, he said, do unto others as others, you want others to do unto you, and everything else is commentary. Ah, so <laughs> me and him. You and Hillel. I think that's what he said. You know that story about the guy who saved all his money because he wanted to find out what is life? He saved all his money because I heard there's a little guy on top of a mountain in India mm -hmm. that's the guru of gurus that knows the answer to everything. So the guy saved all his money, sold everything he had, Put passage to India, got himself some guys, you know, and went up the mountain all the way up to the top of the Himalayas. And there's the little guy sitting cross-legged in front of a fire, the little wise man. And he walked over and said, oh, I've done so much to get here. Oh, tell me, sir, what is life? Uh -huh. And the little old guy goes, life is a fountain. And the guy says, life's a fountain. And the guy goes, life's not a fountain? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a great joke. Told beautifully. <laughs> Man. But yeah, it can all be, you know. I was, you know, and that's how you know when somebody, I'll give you the compliment that when somebody's a great joke teller, you're laughing before anything funny. Because I, I was laughing with anticipation because I know it's going to be good. You trust me. You uh, trust me, yeah, Dan. Yeah, I know I'm in good hands, <laughs> and, the, and the timing is right, and the pauses are there, and it's like you're, you're happy even before anything happens. Thank you, buddy. Um, okay. But be, that's, that's very reaffirming, that, you know, and the rest is commentary. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, that is what it is, that you want to treat each other right. That's, that's what everybody at the core of every religion, I think, you know, I'd agree with you guys that that's what it's – all about you know right right and when you talk about like a, a oneness of of god and humanity it's it's all about trying to build that interconnectivity between between everything to make it that one feeling of you know symbiotic so, you, so you'll want to do nothing to hurt the other guy and you want to contribute and you you know right and that's 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 when everybody is at peace you know with the, with each other with themselves you know i think you know, they say change begins with yourself. That's the, that's the crux of it all. Because if you get at peace with yourself, you don't want to do anything bad to anybody else. Right, and right. The, because then, it's only going to upset your personal apple cart. Yeah. Know? So just everybody needs to just sort of become at peace with themselves. Maybe that's Buddhist or something. Or well, And you know what else is? I never went to AA, <clears throat> but that's AA. And I, I, in my mind, I was like, is that a little bit of a cop out of what? But supposedly in AA, the very first thing you have to do is completely forgive yourself. So you're starting with a fresh slate, you know, so because you can beat yourself up and say, you know, well, I already screwed this up or, you know, you start with a fresh slate, which is kind of interesting. But I've always been so crazed by the concept of, of the Catholic Church and, the, you know, the mobster goes in and says, you know, I just shot everybody in my enemy's family and they 
we'll say three Hail Marys and start fresh, you know, mm-hmm. bullshit, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, forgive me, Lord. No, no, not forgive you. You know, you, you killed people, you know. But do you think that mobster knows that, the, that it's full of shit? You think he walks out of there feeling forgiven or you think he's like, you know, I don't know. I do know how, you know, I don't want to get on any kind of anti-religion thing, but there are people that really think that that's so cleansing. And, you know, it's so weird because everything, everything is, is how you're raised and everything is, is memory. Everything is, is trails that have been laid in your brain. Like it, if I walk into a church, I'm not a religious guy, but I must be on some, because when I walk into a church, it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, would, I wouldn't walk in and go, what the fuck is this? Pl-? You know what I mean? It's like from, the, from being a kid and, and going to Sunday school and going to church, you know, that reverence, it's, it's a nice, comfortable thing, and it puts you in a nice, comfortable place. So, you know, I, you can understand... It's being a comfort for people, but you, you. I think at the core of it, of all religion, when you walk into a religious institution, I think what might what you're describing, what's what's comfortable is, you're in a place where at the very least everybody there wants to be good. You know, even if they're not good, even if they're that hypocritical mobster, I think they're there because they're saying, "Look, it's, even though it's I, a leveler on some." You know, it's it's it, nobody's showing up there because they don't want to be good, right? Even right. if they're not good, they're there because they have that desire, somewhat positive intentions. Yeah. So I think you know, unless they work there, in which case, <laughs> you know, the whole thing goes out the window. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could, they might. Yeah. <laughs> now it's just a job. Anytime you're at a job, Except long for the poor enough, the boy that right. gets nervous when the priest walks behind. Right. Right. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what it is with the priests a lot too. It's that you just you go into any job and you're super ambitious and you're like, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do a great job. And then just years go by and years go by and you're like, I don't know. I guess I still work here and <laughs> right, <laughs> just start right. bending every rule you can. Right. You know? What happened so far? Uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, here we go. Back to uh, Bentham. He became a leading theorist in Anglo-American philosophy of law and a political radical whose ideas influenced the development of welfareism. He advocated for individual and economic freedoms, the separation of church and state, freedom of expression, equal rights for women, the right to divorce, and the decriminalizing of homosexual acts. He sounds like he was an early liberal. He sounds, you know... Forget about the, the the turn of the 1800s. This was this this would have been far fetched and crazy for the turn of the 1900s. You know, yeah, this is a guy way before his time. Sure, yeah. He called for the abolition of slavery, the death penalty, and physical punishment, including that of children. <laughs> Be nice to each other. That's that's the core of it. You know that what we were talking about. Respect each other. Uh, Though strongly in favor of the extension of individual legal rights, he opposed the idea of natural law and natural rights, both of which were considered divine or God-given in origin, calling them nonsense upon stilts. Bentham was also a sharp critic of legal fictions, and his students included his secretary and collaborator James Mill, the latter's son John Stuart Mill, uh, the legal philosopher John Austin, as well as Robert Owen, and the founder of Utopian Socialism. 
On his death in 1832, Bentham left instructions for his body to be first dissected and then to be permanently preserved as an auto-icon or self-image, which would be his memorial. I guess he had himself taxidermied. So he had a pretty decent uh, opinion of himself. It, it, sounds, it sounds a little bit contradictory, like all those wonderful things he wanted. I, I don't, I'm not sure where the saying that you, you don't have any natural rights, you know, I, I would think the right to, to love a man as well as a woman is a, is a natural, you know, excuse the expression, God-given right. But maybe now we think that way. But, the, he, but he's saying that. You know, he's in favor of, you know, decriminalization of homosexuality, mm-hmm. which is, a, you know, which is an... Maybe at the time people would say it's our right not to decriminalize. I don't know. I, maybe it's, they'd say it's our right... I think I think the the crux of it is is uh, is probably the God given part because people use God as an excuse to uh, do anything to yeah or to you know to hate uh, certain groups and which homeless. is which is you know killing in the name of God has gone on for all time and it's just you know that's a, it's it's the it's the ultimate scapegoat you know yeah he told me to don't go. look at me but now this guy lived in England or he lived over here uh, England. English philosopher. I don't know exactly where, maybe. Oh, here, here he is. Born in London, in Houndsditch, London, to a wealthy family that supported. You see, I think also that's part of it, the being born into a wealthy family. Doesn't yeah. suck. <laughs> yeah. then, then you have time. I think when you, the, a lot of the guys that are born into the poorer family start blaming everybody for the fact that they're poor. When they're already wealthy, it's easier, I right, think. And, it, and they're too busy working to stop and think too much. Right. You know. Although, you know, I I come from, you know, the North Shore of Nassau County. There's a lot of really, really wealthy people. And I'm so thrilled that I wasn't born rich. You know, there's a lot of really screwed up, you know. When you got to s- scrape and, you know, I earn my money. You know, my wife used to always get mad at me. Um, not mad. But she always thought I was so melodramatic about not taking out the guitar and things like that. And... I used to open my wallet and have, there'd be $100 bills in my wallet. And I'd be like, wow. And she'd say, enough with that. You know? And I was like, no, you don't understand. You know, if I didn't get a paycheck until I was 38 years old from the Stern Show in 1986, you know, mm-hmm. or a decent one, you know. Um, well, I, my first action one was 1986. I mean, we worked at Governor's and I, you know, worked at a busboy. But for all practical purposes, I mean, I didn't have any money the entire 60s, the entire 70s, for most of the 80s, and to all of a sudden have $100 bills in my wallet. It wasn't like, I mean, if you go through decades with there being no money in your wallet, it's to this day, I open my wallet, I, I get a little, yeah. little spring in my steps seeing $100 bills. And I know, I don't, even if it's ridiculous, and even if I'm being melodramatic, who cares? If it makes me feel good, yeah, I fuck think the world. You're seeing accomplishment. Yeah, what, you know? it's like, wow, you know, I earned that. You yeah. Know? That's what you're seeing. It's not even the money. You're just seeing yeah. your own worth. Right. You right. know, the they, fact that you were able to to make something for yourself. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I It's a great house on the water, you know, and you never think about it. And, you know, I'm up there on my deck looking out over the water and like somebody will come over and go, God, look at this. The house that Dick Jokes built, I'm like, oh my, you know, and but 
It is. Yeah. You know, it, it, you couldn't say it any more succinctly, you know, but that's so, it's so absurd, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Great fun. Well, I, I don't know about our Bertham Rogers Smith, whatever his name yeah. is. Like, <laughs> I'm yeah. sure he's brilliant. He, he might have been just a rich kid that was gay and couldn't find anybody to play with, so he just started thinking. <laughs> uh, here, lastly, it says, because of his arguments in favor of the general availability of education, he has been described as the spiritual founder of UCL, which is University College of London. However, he played only a limited direct part in its foundation. So... That's, I think Universal it, education, you got to hail him for that, you know. The part that about this whole thing that I find a little weird is just having himself permanently preserved as an auto icon. He must have thought a lot of himself to do that. I, I'm not sure I ever heard of anybody doing that. No, you know, Disney, well, well, I think th he did. That, I, I think that's a, a, not even true, but just on the concept of maybe someday being awakened as this, as idiotic as that sounds, at least there's a reason. You know, nobody's going to yeah. wake up the the, the stuffed taxidermied body of <laughs> Berman. Did they do it? Is he <laughs> Bentham? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I I assume they did it. I don't. Maybe you could go maybe and see him somewhere. Maybe it's one of those bodies. You know that exhibition that goes around. Yeah. <laughs> that's so <laughs> odd. Yeah, that's <laughs> disgusting. You know, you know, a comedian named Kurt Metzger. He, he works yes. the circuit around here. From where? I, I, I know the name. He was in the papers for a minute because he got in trouble. He was writing for Amy Schumer, and uh, he said something. I don't remember what. He upset a bunch of people with something, and it became a whole thing. of. Oh, maybe that's where I heard his name. So yeah, I but I, I remember he had the best joke about that bodies exhibit. Years ago, I remember he, he said, you know, people go and see all these, these dead bodies that are on display, <laughs> and... I'm not going to tell it as well as he did because I don't remember exactly how he put it. But he says, <laughs> and and they justify it because they go, they go. You got this guy frozen in position like he's throwing a football, but his skin has been peeled off, and he's he's there, and everyone's looking at it, and and they and they go, it's okay though because you know they're all prisoners. And he goes, they're prisoners from China. What they do? Google the word freedom. <laughs> Yeah, no, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I uh, love that no, joke. No, they, they, I don't, was that the theory that I always, I didn't know where they got the bodies. Yeah, they're, they're Chinese prisoners, supposedly. <laughs> they couldn't have volunteered. Yeah. What is it like? <laughs> yeah, you get 21 virgins and we'll take care of your family. Oh, no, that's a different group. <laughs> different group. <laughs> You know, I'll tell you, when I first saw that, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is as horrible and as gruesome as it is. It's amazing. And it's a little educational and a little spectacular. And wow. And then all of a sudden, they open one in every city. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? I thought it was something that they, it was very special to take it on tour. I'm like, how many fucking bodies they got piled up? And then, you know you know what I mean? There's, they really yeah. are. They're everywhere. Yeah. And there's always new ones. You yeah. Know, that's, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I recognize that guy. Remind me, if I'm, if I'm ever in prison, remind me not to pick up a football. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. 
I'm surprised nobody's done like a like a sexual one, you know. It always has to be reduced to that yeah, horrible stuff. Yeah, eventually it'll become that. It'll get to that. It'll get it. So to round off the show, I always ask the guest to read a little paragraph from the philosopher, and then we discuss it. And then there are three quotes. And so the way we do it is I have you read the quotes. You read one. We pause and see what we make of it. Second one, same thing. Third one, and that's the end of the show. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give you a little paragraph to read, if you will, for us. This is from Bentham. Bentham. A paragraph? Yeah. This is by Jeremy Bentham, by way of Alex Fosella. Yes. Whenever you are oppressed, you have a right to resist oppression. Whenever you conceive yourself to be oppressed, conceive yourself to have a right to resist. Any act of power is unpleasant to a man. He, of course, looks upon it as oppression. Submit not to any decree of the justice of which you are not yourself perfectly convinced. If a constable calls upon you to serve in the militia, shoot the constable and not the enemy. If the commander of a press gang trouble you, push him into the sea. If a judge sentence you to be imprisoned, have a dagger ready and take a stroke first at the judge. What's he saying there? I think he's... he's I... I don't, I, I'm not, now I realize that that wasn't a typo, that that's how this uh, ancient, you know, old English was supposed to read. This is not the best advice. I've, uh, you know, no, <laughs> nobody wants to be oppressed. But if, you know, if they ask you to serve in the army, shoot, shoot, the, you know. That sums it up, all right. <laughs> This is not the Submit best not to any decree of the justice, <laughs> any act of power is unpleasant. In other words, you get pulled over for speeding, yeah. shoot the cop. Sure, that's what he's <laughs> If the commander of a press gang, what's a press gang? I guess that's a... Maybe it was something back then, I don't know. A bad gang. If a commander of a bad group troubles you, push him into the sea. This one, if a judge sentences you to be in prison, have a dagger ready and take a stroke first at the judge. This is he, this is obviously he's speaking in in glowing, you know, he's exaggerating to make a point to sure. Otto and George. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because uh, I would have to sum this up by saying if this paragraph describes his thoughts, he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeremy Bentham. But uh, you should have yourself stuffed and mounted. <laughs> <laughs> and and then he did. And then he did. Yeah, man. Stuff it. That's what they say to him. Stuff it. Hey, stuff stuff it. it, Jeremy. <laughs> but uh, if a judge sentenced you to be imprisoned, have a dagger ready and take a stroke first at the judge. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you're going to be in front of a judge. You're going to have a dagger in your pocket. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, what's the point he's trying to make? Is he trying to say rebel against... He's, what he's saying is resist oppression, and it's it's up to the individual man and the individual person to not take any crap. And yeah. this, and, but this is, and he's saying decide what is oppression. Right, right. If you conceive yourself to be oppressed, conceive yourself to have a right to resist, which you do right. within reason. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And if you know, and if you're in a position where you're in front of the judge, perhaps your reason isn't quite good to right, begin with. Right. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe that ship sailed. You know. So. It's nice to hear you quote Otto and George. The late. Well, I guess only one of them is the late. They were, you know, me and Otto for years and years. We were the guys that didn't get booked because it was so dirty. We did, and we made a living, but uh-huh. we were the dirty ones. And he was a good pal. He was. Uh, he was a sweet guy. I, I I got to work with him a few times. And such a great character. Yeah. Such a great character. We had so much fun. But but George lives on. Somewhere, you know. It's so funny because they did the Jackie puppet on the Stern show, which was always great because you go nuts because it's a puppet and Triumph, the insult dog, insults people. Otto and George did a talk show. Bobby Capelli put together a talk show. I think he only taped like five of them. I don't know what if the, where they, if they ever even got saved. But Otto and George did a talk show, and it was so bad. It was so brilliant because imagine instead of Carson or Letterman, Otto is sitting there with George. Yeah. And you sit down to be interviewed. And you can't talk to Otto because George is doing the talking. But if right. you're talking to George, you're talking to a dummy. Yeah. So you just sit there and all you can say is, I feel like a fucking idiot sitting here. It was brilliant <laughs> because there was no right thing to do. It was so uncomfortable. And, you know, Otto just thoroughly loved that. And the minute George sees any daylight of you being having any discomfort at all, what yeah. the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. Then, oh. I wonder if people listening to this know but I, I hope you put it together by now that this is, we're talking about a ventriloquist act. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I, it was I, I don't know if people know of them. You know, they, Otto, as funny he, as he was, people didn't know him. Yeah, no, you're right. You should Google Otto and George. They were, uh, Otto is a very, was a very low-key, gentle, terrific guy. He started out as a street performer in the early 70s, and he was around forever. And George was his incredibly foul dummy, um, if you'd like to see him in action, there was a movie from 1989 called The Dirtiest Comedy's Dirtiest Dozen. And I'm in it with Otto and George, Chris Rock, Tim Allen. Gilbert in that one? Uh, not Gilbert, John Fox, uh, Stephen Pearl, the whole gang. And But if you Google Otto and George, he's all over the web. I'll tell you, the first, I'd never seen him before. And... I, I was. It was, in fact, the first time I ever got actually handed forty dollars for doing comedy instead of playing guitar and singing my songs. It was for telling jokes at the Rainy Night House in Queens, and you'd never forget that because it's like this is for being funny. Mm-hmm. And I was on the show with Rob Bartlett, and I might be lying. It might have been twenty bucks. I like to say it was forty, but it might have been twenty bucks. I'll, I'll let it slide. Okay, and there's a little <laughs> short, little small storefront called The Rainy Night House. It was like a variety showcase, mainly comics. And I met so many guys there. And, you know, the first time I saw Paul Reiser, people like that, you know, there's no place to work in 1979. And me and Rob Bartlett decide we're going to sit there and watch this ventriloquist because he's supposed to be so funny. And we're five feet from you know, We're sitting at a table for two and on the other side of the aisle. And then right in front of the stage were a couple of two tops that you could touch with your knees from the stage. It's that small place. So there's an aisle. We're across the aisle, and the and the people sitting right up. And 
there's an Asian girl sitting there, you know, on a date or whatever. And we never saw this guy before. And he comes and he's so quiet. And, and for whatever reason, Danny, I will never know, but I had a little micro cassette recorder and I turned it on. And I, it was my pet, pave, pet possession for like a year until like whatever happened to it. Because uh-huh. it was a tape of me and Bartlett hearing Otto and George for the first time. And he sits down and the first thing, he just has the, holding the puppet, he puts the puppet so, like nose to nose with the Asian girl, puts the puppet right in her face and says, excuse me, miss, are my fucking shirts ready? <laughs> and, and, and we kind of gasped and before we could catch our breath, George goes, I don't mean to bother you. I know you people aren't happy unless you're being chased by a fucking monster. <laughs> and, I mean, we were like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and that was my introduction to Otto and George. Meanwhile, we're thinking he's riffing. Meanwhile, that's in his act and he does it every night. We think this is off the top of his head. This is his opening. Yeah. So crazy. So, yeah, but he, he, they, they were he he passed away in his sleep and he you know he had some health problems and uh, he was great but Google Otto and George and you will you will love him. There's always clips and you know he's he's he will live on for sure. You know what's interesting to me about ventriloquist acts? It's always the dummy who's the mean one. It's never the the the, uh, well, the person. It's by always, definition, of course. You know, but that, has there ever been one where it's the opposite? You know. No, you know, there's, there's guys that have the really nice, fun dummies and the fun-loving dummies, but, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> the, the ventriloquists are even bigger, dumber fun. <laughs> right, right. Has there ever been a mean, the that, guy is really mean? That and, is a fun concept. That's that's yeah. something somebody should explore as a, yeah. you know. I wonder if it would work. Could they, it possibly? They can't. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> it was so great because Otto would be so fucking high. He'd be out of his mind, high, and the George would yell at him, like he'd make him. George would make a mistake, but it's Otto. He'd make a mistake, and George would say, "Look at you! You're so fucking high, you can't even make me work right." And like it, you would like couldn't twist your head around because the dummy is yelling at him for being so. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. All yes. fucked up on drugs again. How the hell am I supposed to do a show with you all fucked up? Look at you, you idiot. Because the dummy is that internal voice inside him, to, you know, criticizing him. Of course. And, but, but nobody's got a nice internal voice, but a mean out exterior. Nobody talks, you know, that's, I guess that, that's why it that always has to real, be that That way. would really take some crazy talent. Yeah, that's interesting. That's exciting. All right, well, we got three quotes that we round the show off with. Will you do the honors for us? Okay, and I also want to tell people, it looks like I have a deal mm-hmm. to make my book into a movie. Oh, wow. And I told the guy, the guy, you know, I got somebody with a couple of people with a real lot of money to make it a real movie. And I said, listen, one way we could fund this movie, and I might be crazy and I shouldn't even say this, but I think we could make a fortune making a documentary of just casting Howard and Robin and Gary and Fred. Did you ever see the Seinfeld when we were first yes, casting yeah, Seinfeld? Yes. Remember how interesting that yeah. was? Imagine people coming in to audition for those roles. <laughs> it's interesting. You got a forward by Artie Lang on the book. Oh, you know, he's such a good guy. 
and he did the forward, and I did the audio book. You would think that doing a, reading your book into a microphone would be torture. I am telling you, it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. And Artie read his forward. So it's his voice doing the forward, my voice doing my book. And everybody says, oh, we miss you, we miss you. And they found out that I'm doing an audio version. I bet you the audio version outsells us. And today, before you came, I got an email from the guy saying, the audio book is good to go. I didn't have to go in and do any re retakes, any reruns. He said the editors yeah. are thrilled. And they said it was one of the best reads of an autobiography by an author who, who read his own book. And so these guys are... That's great. So I'm thrilled. And then when we start auditioning for Howard and Robin, that's going to be hysterical. Well, did, did, you and Artie, I guess, have this camaraderie of both having been through this war together. I mean, it's You know, like, we do. And, but it's so funny because so everybody's like, well, it's good to see you guys getting along again, which is absurd. I left in March. Artie didn't get hired till November. Mm -hmm. There was no crossover. You know, they tried a million people to replace me before he came. He, you know, he came after 9-11. But it had to have been hard for you to see somebody in your seat now doing your job from afar. Danny, I never listened to the show when I was on it. I never li listened to the show when I was off it. So whatever was going on, right. all I knew is what people told me. Yeah, You know, to tell you the truth, when they said, oh, they keep having people in and nobody's really working out, I'm like, that, does that make you feel good? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not against the show. I want the show. The bigger the show is and the better the show stays, the bigger that makes my legacy right. if I have one. You know, I don't want the show to die. I want the show to go to the moon, you know? I wouldn't imagine you'd be against the show. I just think that anytime anyone feels replaced, it hurts. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but he did not do what I did. You know, he 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 went in and sat, and he was a lot. He was an on-air talent. Mm -hmm. I was a. I guess you could call me an on-air talent, but I really wasn't. It wasn't like, hey, Jackie, what do you think of that? You, you, you know, saw I had your to position say, more Howard as a writer. Yeah. yeah, everything I had to say, Howard said. So, um, are you still talking with the other people from the show? Or yes, yeah, so, you know, somewhat. Like me and Gary emailed back and forth, and John, I talked to yesterday. I haven't spoken to Robin in a long time, but we went to lunch about a, a year ago, a year, about a year ago. And Fred and I emailed back and forth here and there. But how, you know, me and Howard sent birthday, you know, Same. birthday, mm -hmm. you know, emails saying, you're almost as old as me, you know. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how they react to this. I mean, it's, it's a love letter to the show. I mean, I guess there's a few things he probably wouldn't want to have been in there, but there's, there's no trashing and there's no... Everybody knows everything about the show. Everything that happened was on the air. Right. Or got talked about on the air. You know, I explained the whole Jessica Hunt thing and apologizing to my wife. And, and Is that something that you, you hope one day is to to be able to have a, a friendship with Howard after all this is over? No, I'm sure. Uh, we're, the we're, well, we're not still over, friends. But, you know. We're still friends. I mean, you know, there's nothing hurtful in the book. You know, if he's worried at all, I'm sure he's worried about stuff I could say. And there's nothing, you know, the things that, that might, be hurtful of things that would be so trivial to anybody else because it would all come across as whining. I mean, the whole, my whole existence to a lot of people comes across as whining because so many people were given anything to go up and sit in my seat for free. Mm -hmm. Like, look where you were, look what you had, look at look, look what you were doing. It like, doesn't no, matter no, when you're- it was my job, man. Yeah. I, I helped make that seat what that seat was. All right, Jackie, we got the quotes. Will you, uh, will you do the honors and, and read these quotes for us? It is vain to talk of the interest of the community without understanding what is the interest of the individual. 
is vain to talk about the interest of the community without talking about the interest of the individual? Because why? Because the individuals comprise the community, I guess. Yeah, but but one is, you know, one is, they're both the same thing. You know, they if they don't work hand in hand, there's no sense in knowing the interest of the individual without knowing how he's going to fit into the community. Right. And I, think I, that, and I think they, you know. I think it goes back to what we were talking before about also just about work on yourself, you know. And then the and then the greater society, if everybody's at peace with themselves, that, right. that well, talk about the, the interest in community. All right, with the community, I got an idea. We're going to build a church, and then you go around and find out that none of the people want to go to the church. You know, like right? So, all right. I I still think he should stuff himself. <laughs> Every law is an infraction of liberty. You know, no, no. I would change that to every law or most every law is a necessary infraction of liberty. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's not an infraction of liberty. It, it, it's, once again, greater good. Almost the laws give you the liberty in a weird way because without the laws, you're living in mayhem. And what kind of liberty is that? Right, right. You don't have the liberty to walk outside your house, you crazy bastard. You I, yeah, I think almost putting restrictions on life, I've seen this in my own life, and also talking about sobriety, is is freeing, you know? Right, right. Having everything is almost having nothing. Dancing inside the, right, dancing inside the lines is everything. That's why I thought they, they never moved the Stern Show to Sirius XM. For all those years, we danced inside the, in the lines. Mm-hmm. And dancing inside the lines was the game. Yeah. The rarest of all human qualities is consistency. Well, Jeremy, you went out on a good one because I have to thoroughly agree with that. We all want to be consistent, but Jesus. And people just aren't. People people aren't dependable. And, you know, consistency is a big deal. You know, it's so funny. Nowadays you have people, I got a friend named Charlie, and you know what? He does what he says he's going to do. That shouldn't be to your credit. That shouldn't be, hey, hey, look at this guy. You know what he does? What he says he's going to do. You, like Chris Rock said, you're supposed to. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to do what you said, you know. Yeah. How to be consistent. Okay. Well, we'll give you that one. I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll throw a, uh, I'll put a layer around the neck of this guy's body wherever he is. You know, what proves that quote is the fact that he wasn't consistent with the other one. <laughs> Yeah, he should have he should have <laughs> climbed down off his podium and read his own stuff. <laughs> All right, thank you, Jackie, so much. This was a pleasure. I absolutely thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I know I go way way long with my answers, like I am with this one. But thanks, and I would love to do it again. And I want to say thank you to Mark Malkoff because uh, he's a delightful guy, and he put us together. And I'm so glad he did. Yes, me too. And the book is called The Joke Man. Bow to Stern. And the the book's available in audiobook and in Kindle and in hardcover with the forward by Artie Lang and everybody's talking about it and everybody's going to buy it. And I love it. And this is your free copy. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. I'm Thank honored. You. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. And now while I'm in the Jackie district, I'm going to call Jackie Mason to see if he's around. Hello, mister. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Jackie Martling. Make sure you go pick up his book. Great book. And uh, that's it. Please leave a nice rating. 
five stars and a nice comment. I don't think we've gotten too many comments in quite a while, so that would be nice. And uh, you start leaving comments again, and I'll start putting out episodes again. Is that a good deal? I think it's fair enough, okay? Fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of fair enough, there are still some copies of issue two available for sale of my comic book, Fair Enough. Issue one is sold out, but there are still some copies left of Fair Enough number two. And you go to fairenoughcomic.com, you can get them, and I'll sign them to you. And that would be cool, hopefully, for both of us. The website's moderndayphilosophers.net if you want to leave a donation, and my email is thecomical at yahoo.com if you want to write and say hello. I'm always happy to hear from you. Tell people about the show, spread the word, spread the love, and take care of yourselves. All right, talk to you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers, the podcast that just keeps on giving every now and then. And of course, as always, thank you to Alex Fisella for picking out a great philosopher, and to Logan Heftel for mixing and mastering the audio. Couldn't have done it without them. Okay, see you next time. Bye for now.